You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Preachers and dingling dames run up business. When organized crime hits their town. What did you have in mind, Tiger? These ladies hit back. And become the North Avenue Irregulars who meet big time crime head on. Who would suspect a bunch of dingling dames? Nobody does it like the North Avenue Irregulars from Walt Disney Productions, rated G. What these ladies do to organized crime is really criminal. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. David Kittredge. Hello, Mike. Also back in the booth is Mr. Rod Lott. Mike, I regret to inform you that tickets for the annual bean and salad supper will be $1.50 instead of $1. On this episode, we are looking at the 1979 film The North Avenue Irregulars, based on the nonfiction book by Reverend Albert Faye Hill. The film stars Edward Herman as Reverend Mike Hill, a minister who arrives with his two children at their new congregation in an unnamed California town. Well, actually, they give it a name. They call it New Camden. Yeah, aka the Valley. Really, let's let's be real. With big Pasadena, enter here on the highway signs, fully in frame. They come to this California town to find a rather wacky group of women who help run the church. When one of them loses the church's money on some illegal gambling, Hill tries to get it back. Humiliated and chagrined by the mob who run the gambling there, Hill teams up with the Treasury Department in order to take down crime with his team of irregulars. We will be getting into spoilers. I mean... How can we not talk about the Demolition Derby ending? So if you haven't seen North Avenue Irregulars, please track it down and come back after you've watched it. And even though this is ostensibly a Disney movie, I don't think it is playing on Disney+. Plus. I couldn't find it. So that's a big miss, Disney. Shame on you. David, when was the first time you saw North Avenue Irregulars and what did you think? I saw the North Avenue Irregulars in the movie theater. With my mother at the Plymouth Meeting Mall in Pennsylvania, it was a tuplex at the time, and they would have Disney matinees. And I remember being seven years old, you can do the math, seeing the North Avenue Irregulars in 1979 and loving it. And 
I did not know why exactly I loved it. I mean, I love the Demolition Derby ending. It was many years later when I was like, oh, of course, all of these wacky, insane, like almost Pedro Almodovar women running around being crazy. Of course, later I came out as gay. So I'm like, of course, this is why I love the North Avenue Irregulars. This is like of all of the live action Ron Miller Disney movies, which I'm a big fan of because they're, they're some of their terrible. Some of them are great, but they're all kind of their own weird animal, their own like vibe to them. This is the one that is for the gay boys, the little gay boys, because they have that cast. They have Cloris Leachman, Susan Clark, Karen Valentine, Barbara Harris. And of course, you know, the one of the biggest lesbians in Hollywood, Patsy Kelly. I can say that because she was openly gay at a time that it was not cool to be openly gay. And I want to talk more about Patsy Kelly because I, I am convinced this is an unofficial sequel to Rosemary's Baby. And that is the same woman who was with Roman and all the cast of But she somehow moved to Connecticut with North Avenue. And then she had a diabolical plot to have her husband steal the money so that the church would blow up. That is my interpretation of this. It's a radical interpretation, but I think it fits. I didn't realize that we were pretty much the exact same age. Born in 72? Yes, born in 72. I'm going to be having my 50th next year in 2022. And yep. uh, there's already debate about what to do in the land of hopefully receding COVID. I don't feel like I'm almost 50. I don't know what that does feel like. Maybe nobody does. But it's like, you know, I'm, I feel pretty good. I don't know. It's weird. I think when you, if you grow up in the 70s, like you see 50 year olds in the 70s who had been smoking since they were like, you know, 11 and, you know, and drinking like scotch, like, you know, every freaking night, like this suburban, you know, thing. And I knew all these guys. And when they were 50, they looked run over. They're like, you know, they were what we would call like, you know, 75 now. Like that's how they looked. But, you know, we're, we're the new 50, Mike. And Rad, how about yourself? First of all, I'm 50. Uh, you are not you way. are not at all there's no way you look a baby face huh for the reasons you know you you mentioned uh karen valentine cloris leachman barbara harris you know, susan clark as being for the gay boys i argue it's for also the hetero boys but we'll get into that but i first saw this movie on view which was a very short-lived pay tv subscription service that oklahoma city had before cable tv hit and so for about four to six months, my family had this. And it was from like in the evening, some UHF station would go off and they would use that to beam in a couple of movies a night. That's where we saw the North Avenue regulars. We taped that and several other things on VHS and watched them over and over and over. So this is one of those that I had memorized and had not seen again until this week. And it's amazing just how much of it had stuck with me. Like you, David, I saw this at the theater. I saw this with my family. I want to say it might have been released around a holiday because it feels like a whole bunch of us were all together and we decided let's go to the movies. So we saw this and I want to say that I saw it a few times theatrically, but it, it's definitely, it was a major part of my life. And not to say that, you know, it's like, uh, you know, playing action figures with uh, North Avenue regular characters or anything, but it was definitely one of those where I remember this movie very strongly. I was given an opportunity a few years ago to write about it and uh, for Ben Omar over at Bear Manor Media, and I immediately just jumped at the chance because I 
love this movie. So I wrote a couple chapters and one of them was on North Avenue regulars. And so actually the interviews that you're going to hear on this episode were recorded five years ago, maybe more than that. It was a long time ago. So the late Edward Herman is going to be making an appearance on this podcast. Thanks to the miracle of recording. I wonder how you scored that. Yeah. (laughs) And it's a fun interview too, because I'm not sure how much of this I'll keep in there. He's actually at Hollywood book and poster and doing some shopping. Not only was the man in a bunch of movies, but he was a genuine movie fan. So he's there looking at, stills and talking to the guys at the store while he's giving this interview. So good times. I also want to throw in a recommendation, an unbiased recommendation for that book. Get that cat out of here because Mike does have an incredible chapter in there, not just on Irregulars, but also an even better one, I think, on Airplane 2, the sequel. If I could find my interview with Robert Hayes, I will try to do an Airplane 2 episode, because I think I still have the director's interview, but I'll see if I can get Hayes' uh, his file somewhere and see if we can put that together. And even without the Mike White chapters, that's a great book. But still, buy it. And this movie's got everything. It's got all the things that you want from a 1979 movie, especially one produced by Buena Vista. So you've got that great opening animation sequence, which I love animated opening sequences. And the score is really good. And I wish there was a released version of the score, but I cannot seem to find it any place. But maybe on like a, if there's a Robert Brunner collection out there someplace that I'm not aware of, but I really dig the music. And I, you know, you might get a little sick of hearing some of the themes by the end of the movie because. The songs are, I'm sorry, the score, I should say, and the animation up front are both. 110% Pink Panther ripoff. Oh, totally. In mostly a good way. The, the only thing I think that the animation doesn't do well is use that as an opportunity to tell jokes in the way that the Blake Edwards movies use that as sort of like silent silent comedy and, you know, here's some stuff for the kids before people start talking. Because it's like, you'll see like in this, the the cartoon women might just jump in a car and the car drives off and that's it. In sunglasses. Yeah, and there's and they all look like the female version of the spy and spy versus spy. You know, she wasn't in many of them, but you, they all look like that. But the only the only part that does sort of feel Pink Panthery really in that animation is the last part where they all get crushed in the back of a garbage truck, or is suggested. I mean, you don't hear screams of terror, but it is suggested by the look on the criminal's face that they've all died a bloody death. And this is a Disney movie, so welcome, kids. There's some inappropriate things in this movie, which I really never picked up on until just more recent viewings. Like, even when I was writing about it, I was like, wait a second, did Ruth Buzzy get served for service by a whole bunch of men at the Elks Club? What is happening here? You do what you want, Reverend Wainwright. But personally, I haven't had this much excitement since I got snowed in at the Elks Convention. I, I took that to mean that she was hanging out with the dudes at the Elks Club. I don't. I didn't get... She wasn't getting railed by the Elks. This is a very gay movie, and we have to accept this right now. We have to talk about this as the resident gay 
it is my duty to talk about how gay this movie is. Okay. Usually I get in trouble for making things political, but here we are. We're, we're going to make well, this one fu- gay this you, you time. Me, That's fine. I, I can, I can start talking about like horrible. I can start talking about political shit, but it's like basically I, I'm here to talk about the gay shit. And this movie is super. This movie, it's like, it's so gay. You have like all of these women in these station wagons, like trying to tail criminals on, on, on CB radios. It's like the women. Except by way of Disney and CB radios in the seventies. It's like, you know, you, you like, if this were made like 40 years before, I mean, this didn't happen 40 years before, but it's like, you know, it would have had like, you know, you know, Joan Crawford behind the wheel of something, Norma Shearer talking about her jungle red nail lips or nails or whatever. And it's just like, it's the same vibe. It's the same vibe. These are wacky, wacky women and they're station wagons battling the mob. It's like how how that is gay. I'm sorry. That is th- definitively gay. Is that what irregular means? I've always wondered. That's the Baker Street Irregulars. That's where they took that. That was from the book. Uh, yeah. And Sherlock Holmes had the quote unquote Baker Street Irregulars, and so it's like these were the North Avenue Irregulars. That's actually where that came from. God, I read Sherlock Holmes, and I never made that connection. <laughs> it's a tough connection to make. I I don't think I don't think you're alone. Weirdly, in the in the UK, it was released under a different title. It was released as Hills Angels. Get it? This comes from Sherlock Holmes, and yet in the UK, they're just like, fuck your title, we're doing something else, okay? I don't know what the fuck your problem is. No one's going to get that. They were probably like, no one's going to get that, and we're British. And then, you know, they did it anyway. It was very tough to find this book when I was doing my research. And then what I ended up getting, I got a used copy of it. And inside of it was a typed speech from somebody who was introducing Hill to whatever some sort of like community function in, I want to say Denver, Colorado, because he was in Camden, New Jersey when he, you know, when this stuff went down in the late fifties, early sixties, I want to say. And then I want to say he wrote the book in 68. So it might have been mid sixties. And then he moved out to Colorado, and then I think he stayed there until I want to say he passed away not that long ago, because I really tried to reach out to him years ago when I was doing this and when I was writing it, and couldn't find him, couldn't get a get a hold of him. But yeah, this was all based on a real thing that was going on, and talk about politics, really it's like the, the mafia and the government and the police force just all hand in hand. And I never noticed that wink that the cop gives to the tailor where he's just like, yo, here's a, uh, here's our search warrant, wink, wink. And I was like, Oh, okay. You guys are really in deep. And yeah, the cops are right there in the pocket of the mafia. Everybody's getting paid off. And that's what motivates this whole story mike you're gonna get complaints from the pro mafia contingent of this country. well we're normally i know i know they're there. show yeah. yeah they're gonna be they're gonna be like how dare you how dare you mike talk about the mafia and like you know you don't demonize the mafia they do great things we've got a lot of listeners in sicily i didn't realize until your essay in the book mike that this was based on a true story i remember seeing like based on the book in the credits, but I just assumed it was a novel. I mean, that story fascinates me, and I, I wish that I could read more about it. I was I, I wasn't able to find the novel, or I mean, sorry, the book. And other than the clips that you've uncovered, I can't find anything more in depth about talking about it because it's kind of amazing. There's not like a whole documentary about that, or maybe there is, and I just don't know about it. But that would be 
really fascinating to hear from those women. Yeah, I would have loved to have heard their stories because, yeah, it's all from Hill's point of view when it comes to the writing of it. But, of course, he's giving them all credit, obviously, so which is nice that he's doing that. And it is interesting, too, that this is – that he goes out into the community and tries to get men to help him out and none of the men will help him. And that he ends up going to the women that help him run the church – and they're all the ones that are the ones that actually want to help out and try to do this. And their their incompetence is probably played up a lot more for the movie, but their incompetence is what makes the comedy for this. And I appreciate that. that and I also appreciate that even though they keep screwing up, they keep trying and trying and trying. And they're trying different tacks and they never give up and they actually succeed. And so spoilers, but I really appreciate that. That is what motivates this whole movie. It's kind of funny I'd, realizing it on this viewing how it seems like every two minutes, even though it's only maybe three scenes, where Edward Herman is going back to the cops and or Treasury Department, sorry, being like, the girls like to give another try. All like reaching for the Maylocks and oh, my stomach. And but they just, you know, yeah, it's keep it on. Billionaire actor on. Michael Constantine. You have to hand it up. Like, they, like that's his role in so many movies. This is like the, that dude being upset. That's it. That's him. And I love little Steve Franken, who is just doing a fantastic job. And he's one of these guys, these character actors, where you just see him show up a thousand times. I mean, we talked about him on the Colchak tapes. We've talked about him on Barney Miller podcast. I mean, he's one of these faces where you're like, oh, yeah. I know this guy. Yeah, I meant to look him up, and I never did. But I'm sure just by those titles, there's probably a jillion more. When you look at, like, actors from the 70s, and really the 60s and the 70s, there was a whole population of character actors that just – you can see. They just made a living. And and that you don't know their names. And I, and I ran into this when I was, like, doing research on my documentary, which I'm doing, on Exorcist 2. Like, there are, like, these little roles. And I'm just like – I know her from somewhere. Like, like Dana Plato is in it, and Dana Plato's mom has to freak out at one point because Dana Plato's been miraculously healed by Linda Blair. She's, she's, she's this woman, and she's this very particular kind of like seventies woman where she's like, she looks like she's really like mid forties, but she's done up to be like early sixties or something. And you know, her whole line is just like, she's talking. This is nothing to do with the North Avenue of regulars, but I'm making a point. You know, but basically I looked her up and she was like the lead in uh, like a, a, a sitcom that was on for one season. And then she was like on the love boat and she was on this other thing. And she was like, she just did all of this stuff. You look at these actors and he's one of them. And it's just like, you can tell their whole year because you could look at like the TV shows that, okay, you did a walk on on that and you did a week on that and you did this on that. And you were in this supporting role in this Disney movie and this AIP picture and this like, you know, Frank Perry movie for Paramount or whatever it is. And it's just like that, that was a career. That was a whole like kind of, you know, and, and it's weird because it's like it captured in film and television. We can go back and look at it and see the, you know, the connections of kind of where they swam to <laughs> in this pool of entertainment production. Now I think it's a lot, just a lot more fragmented. I mean, there's just a lot more stuff, but it's a lot more fragmented and actors make their livings, but it's not just on like TV spots and, and film, little film roles. It's in everything. It's in commercials. It's in, you know, video games, it's on podcasts, it's on everything. Influencing. Influencing, yeah, whatever. I mean, you know, cameos. I mean, it's just like literally 
there it it's just such a different industry now and i think one of the things i would love to talk about with regard to this movie and what i think the greater story is is where it came in the Walt Disney production line because basically Ron Miller and Mike stop me if i get anything wrong because i'm not a disney expert but this is this is what i know ron miller was walt's son-in-law Ron Miller was the executive producer of basically every Disney movie, that, every Disney live action movie. I don't think he had to do with animation as much. From about, I would say, the mid 60s, like the Dexter Riley, like, you know, movies, the computer war tennis shoes, strongest man in the world, Gus, all the way through to the early 80s when there was this massive implosion. And North Avenue Irregulars is one of these movies that came at the end of this entire era of Ron Miller being the executive producer. And there were two or three directors that they all like Vincent McEvity was one of them. Tokar was one of them. Uh, something or other Tokar. I don't have it in front of me. At any rate, they would do these movies that are very cheap, but almost formulaic, but kind of unique in their way. And there's a list of them. It's like goes from like Super Dad to One of Our Dinosaurs is Missing, Candle Shoe. Some are good, like Freaky Friday is really good. The Apple Dumpling Gang is 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 pretty good. The Love Bug, of course, spawned three sequels of, of varying degrees of quality, but a couple of them are good. So you have these movies that are like that have this like kind of vibe to them. And it was at this point in the late seventies that Disney was, you know, they were losing money. They weren't making money on their, on their movies the way that they had been. I mean, you know, in the sixties, the jungle book was like one of the biggest movies of the year. Mary Poppins, one of the biggest movies of the year. They hadn't had any successes like that for years. And there was talk about Disney being bought out and, and they were going to change leadership, which they did to Michael Eisner just after this period, really. But, you know, this was when they made the black hole. You know, the black hole the same year was their $20 million answer to Star Wars. And, and it was a huge, it did not flop, but it didn't, wasn't a hit either. It was like this mid range kind of like it made its money back and a little bit more, maybe, but not much more. And it was totally crazy. Disney did not know what they were doing at that time. They wanted to make grown-up, more grown-up movies, but they still had that Disney label. But they did realize, and this is where North Avenue comes in, that they had to get a little more ambitious because, you know, no deposit, no return, and unidentified flying oddball was just not going to freaking cut it anymore. North Avenue Irregulars, if you look at it in kind of terms of what all the other movies were happening, it's actually a bit elevated compared to the live action Disney movies, maybe with the exception of Freaky Friday, which I think is its own kind of cool thing, but it's elevated over certainly over like stuff like no deposit no return and and um snowball express yeah snowball express super dad cat from outer space cat from outer space is actually pretty good if you watch that again it's not a bad movie but disney was also taking these swings with movies like pete's dragon which didn't really pay off it was not a hit um when it came out the black hole not really a hit they tried to do like the watcher in the woods which has its own kind of long history it was 1980 and it was it was a genuinely suspenseful movie it was a, an adult it was a ya novel but it was like an adult movie and it, it was genuinely scary it freaked me out when i saw it at 13 but it had huge problems and they had to do two sets of reshoots they blew all of their release dates and it ended up being kind of this like flatline release. And then it all kind of came crashing down and Michael Eisner took over. And then Ron Miller was kind of given, you know, shown the door. But I will say like the, the movies themselves, it shows this per, it's a particular attitude about movie making. It's kind of like one of the studio, it's like what the studios had in like the thirties and the forties. They had like a kind of a package formula and they kind of like did stuff with it and tweaked it a little and, 
Disney would just make these live action. And, and it was a great business because they also had the TV show, which they had to feed with content. So they would make all these movies. They would release most of them. But there were a few that they didn't even bother theatrical releasing. It re- literally went directly to Wonderful World of Disney on ABC. And they're all about the same runtime because it, that it was the TV thing. Like, you know, they're all like 90 minutes, you know, to be done <laughs> like two one hour things one week after the next. And it was a good business. It's just that, you know, the movie industry, especially after Star Wars in 77 was irrevocably changing and, and they couldn't get away with making these little cheap little kitty movies anymore and expect to like, you know, stay in business. I mean, they didn't lose money, but none of them were hits anymore. And North Avenue Irregulars, it feels more expensive than the other ones, especially with the, the sheer destruction of automobiles that happens at the end. Especially in the last third, it actually, with no qualifiers, works. Like some of that stuff toward the end, uh going into the last act of the film it's not even like cheesy, awful, like most of the Disney movies, like cheesy, oh, it's fun, but whatever. But it's like when, when, you know, spoiler alerts, like basically at the end of act two, like if you're a screenwriter, like act two is when everything falls apart. Uh, the mobster bad guys set a bomb in the church and blow it up. They don't blow it to like its foundation, but they basically make it so that people can't. It, it's, it's a Disney explosion, I guess. I don't know. It's like, you know, it didn't, it didn't really damage the building, but it's like you can't be in there anyway. And it's, it's treated as a big tragedy. The, the scenes that come after it are actually really genuinely good. I won't say moving because it's a Disney movie, but it's like I was emotionally engaged. Well, it never gets maudlin, which is nice. Yeah, exactly. It's it's not it's it's sentimental, but not in a saccharine way. There are the two kid characters that Edward Herman brings to the party. And they've got a couple things to do, but it's not like, oh, dad, how are we going to do this? And da, da, da. No, they got nothing to do. They're barely there. Like even Susan Clark, who is the love interest, she's there for the first bit, but then she disappears for a long time and she actively hates Edward Herman through most of this. And then there's a turn at one point. It's like, okay, now I realize what you guys are doing. This is fun. And now I will really be the love interest. I thought they explained that pretty well, though, because basically the the backstory of the character is that her her fa- her father, yeah, her father was the long term minister of this church. And did, did he die or did he just kind of go away? I think he retired. Yeah, yeah, but but he never shows up, which is weird. But she's still there, so she resents this new person coming in and even admits to this. If you're going to be Edward Herman and come in and you basically bring the strawberry shortcakes. And we have to talk about, we have to talk about the strawberry shortcakes because, oh my God, really, really? Yeah, I would resent him too for bringing those guys in there. The strawberry shortcakes who are led by Gary Morgan, who has been in a ton of things, including, we talked about this on the Silent Partner episode, he was the body that's actually inside Matilda, the boxing kangaroo that um, Elliot Gould manages. Yes. So, and Elliot heard that and he was like, oh, sure. Yeah, I'll talk about that. I'll, I'll, yeah. Like, okay, good. Okay, I showed my boyfriend the trailer for that. That film. He literally, Matilda, yeah. He literally did not believe, he thought I was like, cause I'm an editor. He literally thought 
I somehow invented this movie and like cut a shot of Elliot Gould in there because he recognized Elliot Gould. I mean, right. it's and Elliot here's Gould. Robert Mitchum. Yeah, yeah, and here's Robert Mitchum. And here's the least realistic kangaroo in the history of cinema. Literally a guy in a kangaroo suit. Did they think it was going to be projected through like a like a pinhole like at like at like three twenty by two eight forty like 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 I don't know how you think how blurry would you have to have this film for anyone to think that this was real ever it's like they could have been animated like Pete's dragon and it would have been better it would have been like more like realistic well you know the dragon's name in Pete's dragon is Elliot named after Elliot Gould so you learn wow. something new every day yeah Mal- Marmistine was a very big Elliot Gould fan they were friends and i think he even co-wrote the screenplay for Spies all comes back to Elliot Gould yes Irving Kirshner how scary is it that i know who directed Spies a movie i've never even seen do you ever wonder what drugs are done on these live action disney movies I know it's probably zero. I know it's probably because look at the people. I mean, these are like li- genu- generally they're like theater actors. They're like they show up on time. These guys, because if they don't, Ron Miller fires them. Ron Miller is not taking any shit from anybody. You read any of the books on Ron Miller, like Disney, any any history of Disney. This dude was just like he was like a quarterback, right? He was this big butch manly man dude, and he kept his movies on time and cheap and cute and. Fuck you if you didn't agree with him. I mean, that was his thing. And so I can't, but I would love to believe that, like, you know, they were just snorting coke all over the place on the North Avenue regulars, like Karen Valentine, before she gets in that hooker outfit, just like did a little line and just like whatever. By the way, children, I am not advocating drug abuse, okay? <laughs> it was probably Melora Harden. I mean, she was what? She eight? was like 10, what, nine? I didn't realize she was in this until this viewing because i obviously she wasn't star back then but i almost couldn't believe in the credits i had to pause it go to imdb and make sure i wasn't confusing her with like laura walters or oh i did i thought it was laura walters i'm like was she in magnolia like was that no like no i had to look it up that's walters yeah yeah that's walters that's not hard but can we okay can we i i don't want to hijack this but can we talk about barbara harris's wig what is up with Barbara Harris's wig. Okay, first of all, Barbara Harris, if you don't love Barbara Harris, you probably don't have a heart because she is so great. She is so great. She is a great actor. She was not in nearly enough and she's wonderful and she's wonderful in this. And I just wish that she had had a whole nother movie based on her character in this. Um, but she is wearing a very unfortunate wig throughout this movie. It is, it literally looks like, you know how those Legos have like the, the, the plastic cap that's like stuck on their little knob head. That's what this looks like. It looks like, this looks like some, some Disney hair and makeup person literally just had this wig and just like snapped it on her head or something. Like, like. Yeah, that or it's by choice. I mean, it could be. Maybe she just no. Don't don't do don't defame her. Don't defame <laughs> no. her like that. I love her. I think she's awesome and she is really really good she did not choose this patsy kelly okay from rose probably to you know blow up the church and you know help the antichrist was probably behind that wig i believe her character snuck into her house and changed out her wigs to be terrible anything to make things like worse right that's what satanists like they were just like no we just want to make things a little worse you have fine hair we're going to give you a terrible wig 
I used to think that that opening with the Belfry was like half of the movie because it doesn't seem to end. And then I rewatched it last night. And I was like, Oh no, this is only about five minutes, but it really sets the tone for the movie. And it just kind of like casts what everything is going to happen with this. And especially because towards the end of it, towards the end of the rescue of Delaney, who's up on the Belfry of this church painting stuff. And then he gets knocked off by thanks a lot kids and don't blame the kids. I he like how really Susan painting. Clark really takes charge of everything and ends up setting up the rescue. And the the women are trying to help, though they really don't end up helping at all. So I guess it kind of is like the, uh, the movie in miniature. And it does a good job of introducing almost everybody. Obviously, you don't meet the cop. The, I keep saying cops. Sorry, the Treasury Department. It, you obviously don't meet the villains yet, but it does set up everybody else you do meet them all and it does does a great job of setting the tone but if they had just let him die they would have kept the damn money okay can we just say his character is like given these twelve hundred dollars of church funds and then patsy kelly's like he bet it all on a horse it's like wouldn't the next thing you do is like get hit like okay assholes you're paying back the church who the fuck told you this was a good idea and yet it's it's like they asked Patsy Kelly like how could he do this and she just goes oh, 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 you know that whole Disney she does she does it very I can't even do it she does it very well she's like the I don't know but not saying I don't know she's just oh, 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 like that they needed they needed they needed to be punished I'm sorry oh yeah both of them it did throw the movie into plot motion almost immediately though I mean they don't waste much time. They gotta keep it. They gotta keep it at ninety six minutes for Wonderful World of Disney. They go directly from her admitting that to the the bookie place, don't they? The tailor. Yeah, he mopeds down there, and they all have to uh, take their pants off. Which I love that visual of all the guys in the back of the bookie place, in the back of the tailor shop, all in their uh, underwear, just hanging around. Underwear and shirts. And that the one gambler who's like, Oh, you got any tips, father? You see any visions? <laughs> and Alan fucking Hale as the guy who's running the gambling joint. Harry oh, the head. And Harry the hat. Harry the hat. Oh, I'm sorry. Excuse me. And Carl Ballantine. Like Carl Ballantine as that tailor dude. What is Sam the tailor or whatever? Okay, this dude. Has been, was in everything. This dude, like, you see his face, you're just like, oh my God, what wasn't he in? He was in everything. But yeah, Alan Hale with the most disgusting teeth I have seen in a Disney movie ever. Did you see that close up of him with the teeth? Even in, even, even on VHS, you were probably like, oh God, that's disgusting. He needs to brush his teeth. What is this about? Well, he was without toothpaste for at least three years, right? Um, Gilligan's Island. It was a three. It was a three-hour tour. Yeah. Um, sorry, that was a bad joke. Uh, I apologize for even making. It. If you're going to apologize for bad jokes, we're going to be here all night. I know. It's like, like what? Like this is this is our this is this is our fallback. It, the uh, Edward Herman asking Alan Hale for the money back. I had, couldn't help but think of Lost in America, where Albert Brooks goes to Gary Marshall to ask for his money back. And I didn't realize till now, it's like you ask one sitcom icon and here you have another sitcom icon. Totally coincidental. But uh, it's hard not to think of that. And they basically laugh him off too. But again, it just, it does, it gets onto the next scene almost immediately. This movie is 
fast. It is. It's really tight. Very fast. And in, in, in a good way because it doesn't feel rushed. And the way that they dole out the information, especially when it comes to all the female characters, because we have so many, what is it, six main female characters in this film? Yeah. Five or, five or six. I, no, I guess six if you count. Well, if you can, Susan Clark, yeah. And each one much. of them has their <laughs> own little story, and you find out just little bits of information, like uh, the the black lady, how like her husband works. Virginia Capers. He works at a used car place, so she's always driving different cars. And I like that each one of them has like its own like personality to it, plus the different message on the window. Uh, you've got. I don't think we ever see the husband of uh, the Barbara. Uh, Harris character, but we know that she's got just a shit ton of kids and dogs and chickens just, oh, and a oh duck. My God. There's a chicken All and the a shit duck she has to put up and with. I feel so bad for her. Look, she look, she made her own goddamn decisions. Okay, like did she? She did. I'm saying she. I'm calling it, and I'm saying she did. She she made her damn decisions to have all those damn kids. And you've got the whole thing of the wedding that's going on with Karen Valentine, the Jane character, at the whole time. Oh, marrying the gayest man in history, okay? Oh, my God. Oh, who just is in love with his car, man. He just loves that car so much. Pulled him out of the continental baths. Just like, hey, you want your SAG card? Get over here. Ron Miller wants to talk to you. Yeah, that guy has never done anything before since, I noticed. Howard, and his name is Dick Fuchs. And who is completely henpecked by his mother, Mrs. Carlisle, Mother Carlisle, who's played by Denna Dietrich, who for me, and maybe probably for you guys too, because we're all around the same age, she's Mother Nature. You don't mess with Mother Nature. Oh, come on. That's a stick of my sweet, creamy butter. That's chiffon stick margarine. Chiffon stick margarine? Right. Chiffon fooled you. It's not nice to fool Mother Nature. If you think it's butter, but it's not, it's chiffon. Yeah, she's she's an icon. Oh, yeah. And then Leachman. Who's got a major crush on the minister, on, on Reverend Hill. There aren't a lot of single men, okay, in near North Avenue, okay? She's a, she's a classy lady, and she's just like, oh, a nominee. Like, I'll be damned if any of these other bitches are going to take my man. I've decided this is my property. I'm going to get done up. Alfredo will do my hair and nails. And it's a done deal i mean you know he's he's a widow you know he might want to you know just like time to live again edward herman you got these two kids like you know come come over here we're presbyterians we're not catholics i will fuck your brains out it's not a crush she wants to fuck him and if you look that scene where she thinks she's gonna meet him up for sex you know and she turns to the camera and starts walking off and she gets that look on her face like oh my god this is what my oath well he totally fucking led her on like, he was a dick. That was a dick move, Reverend. You thought, you're turning on these poor ladies. It's just like, you know, you, you need to show up. I'm not 100% certain he was leading her on. Because Edward Herman, to me, has always seemed like asexual. Like, there's just nothing there, especially in the character. 
he doesn't really even seem to be interested in Susan Clark. Watch that scene again. He leads on Chloris. That was not Chloris's fault. Chloris Leachman isn't like a, a, a – well, first of all, she was a fucking icon. But that character, she was led on. She was just like, I'm just going to go home and, you know – <laughs> what did she? What did she say? Like I'm gonna watch some TV and then just hit the feathers, eat a like, frozen dinner, yeah, hit the right. and hit the feathers. <laughs> and how he's like, what are you doing around nine o'clock? And oh no, no, in the school rectory. Yeah, we'll meet there. We'll meet there. Yeah, against the okay. wall in the school rectory. This is not fair. What he does, and she even goes like, I'm gonna get you for this. I'm just like, yes, fucking get him. That was a dick move. You thought you were getting some D and you ended up like in a room with fucking, you know, talking about CB radios with a bunch of women. It's like, that's not what she wanted. There's a time and a place. I want to know what she does for a living because she's the one that spots all the money for the CB radios and she's driving that very luxurious car and she's getting her hair and nails done multiple times in this movie. Like she, her husband left her some money. That's what I'm saying. That's what, that's, that's what I think. That's what I'm bringing to it. Yeah, she's divorced, and she took him to the cleaners. That's my take on it. Or she killed him. Or Patsy Kelly killed him. <laughs> Patsy Kelly came over with the Satanists and be like, I'm going to sacrifice your husband. And Cloris is just like, what do I get out of it? And it's like, a pink car and some fucking awesome nails. And Cloris is like, deal. Spoiler for the interviews. I love that no one has anything nice to say about Cloris Leachman. <laughs> Look, no one needs to. She's a fucking legend, okay? It's Cloris fucking Leachman. I, I, I don't care. You work with her, it's an honor. There was a through line in all those articles where it was like praising her for her work, but saying she was a handful. Like they, It's sort of the backhanded compliment, but she is, I mean, like David says, she's an icon. It's all on screen. I mean, she, she is, I would say she and Barbara, I mean, everyone's good in this, but she and Barbara Harris and just below that, Karen Valentine. Like our next level, I think, in this. And like the line I opened with is a joke and on this episode, the bean and salad supper. That is not a funny line, just as written, really. But the way she delivers it is hilarious. And I mean, Chloris is Chloris. You got you to gotta give it to her. Cut back to 1979 when we're watching this in the theater for the first time. Her just holding up her broken nails to the leader of the local mafia and just screaming with those broken nails. The entire audience is in hysterics. And she's got that crazy thing on her head to protect her perm or whatever. Oh, my God. We were dying. And it's still as funny in 2021, 2022. Without irony, one of the funniest moments of any Disney live action like movie at, during that entire like 15 year stint when they were doing these movies or whatever it is, literally the funniest moment. I can't think of in any moment that was funnier than that. Yeah. Fre- Freaky Friday, the end of Freaky Friday comes almost there, but Chloris with the nails, it's like, no, that's, that's, that is gold. And that was her idea, right? According to one of those articles, I believe, unless I misread it, that was her idea. And I love there's no dialogue, nothing. She's just screaming and holding up her hands. <laughs> genius. It's fucking genius. Madeline Kahn would have killed to have a moment like that. So I, I thought about Madeline Kahn, too, because Barbara Harris's delivery is a lot like Madeline Kahn's. I think it says a lot about the industry in that, you know, both like Barbara Harris, just four years before this, had been up for an Oscar for Nashville. And like, this is 
this is what she gets out of that. I mean, it's we enjoy the movie, yes, but I mean, it's like these days, you know, a person in that position usually would be elevated to something else. And Cloris Leachman, too, she just won an Oscar eight years before for the last picture show, which has zero humor in it, if I recall. And I mean, her performance, too, is especially tragic. And, you know, they're in a kid's movie, ostensibly a kid's a family movie, maybe. Okay. But they're not even the lead, you know, they're like, is that what the industry, you know, really, it's like women really didn't. And to an extent today, yes, still don't have nearly the chances that actors do that men do. It really is like the, you know, the, the guy has to be the lead and everyone else supports him. Ironically, everyone else does better than him in this. I do appreciate that she was also in the seduction of Joe Tynan at the same time, which, yeah, I agree that she should have been on a whole lot more. I agree that so many of these ladies should have been in a whole lot more, and they definitely deserve more respect. I would have loved to have seen Karen Valentine just take the industry by storm. She has, she's so appealing. She mm-hmm. has such so a look. Appealing. Such a range, and just yeah, she's terrific, and I love her in this, and I love again, she's got this whole realized arc of you know, oh Reverend, Reverend, you know, here's the date for the wedding, and then you actually get to see the wedding, and then just all of that stuff. Her dressed up like the floozy, and then having uh, the confrontation in the bar, I just love it. I love every scene that she's in. I think that she's just marvelous in this. Yeah, I came away from this movie with the biggest crush on Karen Valentine and as uh, an eight year old should. Yeah. She, she is marvelous. She did. A, she did a lot of TV. I'm, I'm, I remember like it was, it was, what is it? Room two, two, two or whatever it was that, that was, she was the, the star of, I mean, that's money. Like, especially in those days, like sitcoms, we don't under, like, you know, most people who didn't live through the seventies or the eighties don't understand how many people watched network television. Like, like a, a number that you could not possibly get anymore because everything's so fragmented and there's the internet and video games and a billion channels. But it's like in the world of the three channels, it's like a, a hit like Room 222 or like any of those, those shows, like Bruce Bilson, the director, directed a ton of television, a ton of sitcoms and, and a ton of uh, dramas as well. He just did everything. And you would get like tens of millions of people. Tens of millions would watch it live. There's no DVR. You would watch it with the commercials, but everybody would see like Karen Valentine. Everyone would see like Bonnie Franklin on one day at a time. They felt like these people were in their lives and everybody talked about them at their jobs because we were all watching the same things. I'm not really we. I was like a kid, but it's like, like even in the nineties, you look at ER, you look at the ratings that ER got, which was kind of the last big television hit, unless um, I'm uh, some, there's something else. Maybe there is, but it's like you would get like 30 or 40 million people or something watching ER live. And, and, you know, so it's like when you talk about like, we, we talked about actors like, and kind of like, the, the, the careers and the ways that they would just put food on the table as full time actors doing a bit of this, doing a bit of that, doing a bit of TV. If you got a role on a hit TV show and it didn't even have to be a hit hit, it could be like a moderate hit that could go like two or three seasons. You are set for a really long time and you were also a name. So even like if Karen Valentine did not apparently like go into a lot of movies, like she was, it, like, people knew who she was. Like, like you showed a picture of her, people would recognize her by name. 
uh, for a good amount of time. And she and Michael Constantine were won Emmys on Room 222. But yes, yeah, so, and that was four years before this movie, I think, when that show went off the air. So she, yeah, didn't have a huge career after that, but gosh, she's so good. She might not have needed one. She might not have wanted one. Maybe not. I mean, like, Maybe you know, not. if you make but that I mean, kind of money. She, she w- did work. I mean, she continued to work for a while. It just didn't get huge things. You know, did a lot of guest spots, I should say. Well, in the industry, I mean, we can talk about like Barbara Harris being like, you know, and even Cloris Leachman. It's like the industry, uh, even more than today, about women of a certain age. And it's in between that age of hot leading lady and someone's mom. There's a whole like like 10 to 15 year 40 something era where women weren't getting roles because there weren't roles like for them. And, and unless they were little character roles or little supporting roles or something, I mean, you hear about that from actors today. Um, but it was especially bad for women, especially in the seventies and the eighties, like, you know, with regard to these roles, they, they just didn't exist or didn't exist much. I have to say from my own personal experience, Karen Valentine was gorgeous. I think Cloris Leachman to this day, looking at this is super hot in this movie. <laughs> I think she looks amazing. And I, I don't know. I just think her sense of humor to is really sexy to me as well. But Barbara Harris, I think is just gorgeous and hilarious. And even with that squid thing on her hair, or no, that, that's on Cloris. Sorry. On the, even with the squid thing on Cloris's hair at the end, but yeah, Barbara Harris, she's adorable. I mean, like, but they're so talented. They really are. And I think all of, maybe not Karen Valentine, but the, the others, you know, were, had to be over 40 at this point. But women over 40 looked better than men over 40. Back then, you know, men over 40 looked like they were 60, so to speak. The comedic timing of the women as well. I mean, the, when uh, Barbara Harris and uh, Patsy Kelly and Virginia Capers all show up to the same place, all wearing the same outfit, all wearing mm-hmm. the same dark glasses, and then you get that hilarious thing of uh, the beer barrel polka playing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that first sequence where they do their initial and all fail, their initial undercover work. I think is my favorite stretch of the movie. And although the scene you just mentioned is a good one, I'm disappointed they all didn't get their own showcase like Karen Valentine and, and uh, Cloris did. And then they start to branch out and get that because then you have the second time. So they decide we're not just going to go after these low level guys. We'll go after the entire bank, the uh, where the money actually gets delivered to. Cause at first they're just trying to make a bet and have someone witness it. And I love that guy at the, uh, the florist shop who I don't know how tall the gentleman is, but the way that they portray him, he's about eight <laughs> foot tall. <laughs> After they all fail with that, then they decide we're going to go after the bank. We'll go after the big money here and we'll take down the entire organization. That's how you get the ball. That's when they start to branch out a little bit more. And then you get Virginia Capers with the car that doesn't work. And I like these moments too, how they interact with the police because you've got her with the cop who's chasing after her. And I'm glad she didn't get shot. And then you've got the cop interacting with Barbara Harris when she's got all the animals all over the place. And Barbara Harris is just like, hey, I don't have time for this. Yeah, they each are really great. Can I ask, though, why was Karen Valentine dressed 
as a hooker in that first. It's a CD bar. It's because it's there a was CD no need bar. for her to be. <laughs> I'm not complaining. I guess it's that part of town. I always maybe? wondered. Yeah, I don't know. There's some rough parts of town with all those homeless guys hanging out by Clovis yeah, Leachman's swarming car. Swarming the fucking car. Okay, we have to talk about the locations in this movie because the real story took place in New England somewhere, right? I think it was – yeah, I want to say New Jersey, but yeah, I could be wrong. It's like Massachusetts or like somewhere over there. And basically – so all the live-action Disney movies, almost all of them. We're all shot within like two square miles of the valley, which is the Disney campus. Really, it's it's up there. You look through anything from Midnight Madness all the way on back to like the Dexter Riley movie, and you will see the same streets, the same alleys, the same like. But in this movie, first of all, like two things. One is you have to hand it to the car stunts because they're genuinely good. Like, like this is in the post smoking the bandit world. It was CB radios and cars, and it was like you know a big thing for like a minute because smoking the bandit was the second highest grossing movie, 77. The first, of course, Star Wars. But this is literally, it outgrows Close Encounters, Smokey and the Bandit. So just wrap your head around. That's the culture of America. So the car stunts in this movie are in a league that is way beyond a Disney live action movie. Way beyond TV. It's like, this is like genuinely good cinematic car crashes and and car stunts and like, and chases and stuff. But the second thing is, they didn't even care about the signs. Like literally there's a Pasadena highway sign. There's like, you could see signs for Lancashire and Cahuenga and all this, like literally like anybody in Los Angeles knows all of these avenues. There's the, the, the scene where they all peel off. I think that's up in like, that's at Lancashire and um, whatever that weird five point intersection is in the Valley that I'm it's around. It's right North of uh, NBC universal. They don't care that it's all in LA even though it's clearly not supposed to be in LA and the CD stuff apparently I read was mostly long beach, uh, which must've been really crappy in the seventies because now it's like a cute little up and coming. Like it was not really up and coming, but it's like a blossoming kind of like, you know, mini LA beach town uh, with very little seediness in it. But apparently there's like a lot of alleys and storefronts like, you know, that, that look, you know, appropriately, run down so that Cloris Leachman can have homeless people like, you know, I guess rubbing their butts on the chrome or something. I don't know what they were. That was so weird. It's like, what is the, what are they doing? Like they're just hanging out on this car. I just want to be like, how did the filmmakers met a homeless person? I just wanted to clarify for the record that this all took place in new Rochelle, new Rochelle, which is in New New York. Yes. Yeah, this is not in any conceivable way anything that is not Los Angeles. Right. And I want to say they call it New Camden a few times in here. And for those who are like me and here in the Midwest, New Rochelle, it's, I'm seeing like the Bronx. I'm seeing White Plains around it. I'm seeing Queens. It's a burb, uh, basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we are not in New Jersey, I'm sorry to say, but it is pretty close. Except for the Pasadena Expressway is right there. Yeah, yeah. What? Well, what the Pasadena Expressway goes <laughs> right past the uh, the Lincoln Tunnel, I think it yes. is? Yeah. That's, it okay. runs straight through New Jersey. It's actually the other name for the Jersey Turnpike. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. You, you, yeah. You're it referred that way. Even as – so when I was watching this as an eight-year-old, the band being called the Strawberry Shortcake, do you think that was a deliberate strawberry alarm clock reference or just – a coincidence. I mean, there were weird names for bands 
And I want to say that this strawberry, was strawberry, though. Like, I know it does sound very much pass like the a little love around. And they Monday, were, I love that pass song. Pass a little love around. <laughs> Monday. Yeah. That song I, is awesome. I was looking for a 45. I couldn't find anything. I'm very mad. Yeah. And then Karen Valentine takes off in, in her, in her organ improvised like jazz riff out of nowhere. And she's like, and there's the cut to her and the, like, she's like bobbing her head like, yeah, I'm funky. I can do this. Another reason why Susan Clark hates Reverend Hill. She doesn't like joy. Guys, there's the cut then after Karen Valentine does that lick, the cut to her fiance. Yeah. Oh, he's like, oh my God, mother, no. And they're looking at her like, whore. Like, how dare she? That guy is gay. I'm sorry. That is the gayest support. That is gay, 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 gay. Maybe you get some angry emails. Why is why is the gay guy all over this fucking Disney movie podcast? Why? It's because this movie is very gay. It's because no one wants to be on this podcast. No one knew knows about this movie. They I mean, should. Thank God, you guys do. You were like the only two people that were like, "Oh yeah, I, I like this movie." I have I'm a poster like, oh. of it. It's better than like a lot of those live action Disney movies that Disney Plus took up. Because Disney Plus, it's weird. We have to talk about like. They took some very weird, questionable live-action Disney movies and then left other ones that, like, I actually know of, like, No Deposit, No Return from 76 and the North Avenue Irregulars. But they, like, why would you leave off North Avenue Irregulars and include Unidentified Flying Oddball? Like, why would you do that? Even the writer, like, I think who you talk to says that that movie did not fucking work and it didn't it's not good it's not a good movie dennis dugan stars as a hapless astronaut and his robot double dennis dugan in his pre-directing career before he became one of adam sandler's directors and you know he, he was he was in this he does a, a decent performance but it's not a good movie it's not even a good kids movie and yet the north avenue irregulars not on there i don't understand so i don't have disney plus but do they advertise it as we have everything no because as soon as you say that people are going to say what about song of the south i want super dad where's super dad with bob crane where well, is I do it i want to see that but where's one of our dinosaurs is missing one of the most terrible disney movies ever with helen hayes there's a ton especially these buena vista films are just not there but then you get those new Disney films, the ones from like the 2000s, 2010s. Chris Sashi made me watch a bunch of those and, oh, yeah, it hurts. But they have stuff like Candle Shoe. I mean, it's like, you, I will give them credit. They have like, the, you know, the original Freaky Friday, they have Candle Shoe. They have like, they have a bunch of stuff. I think they have that, what is the Ustinov Blackbeard movie? Blackbeard's Ghost. I think they have that. Um, they have Swiss Family Robinson. They have, I think they have 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. They have, a lot of really great Disney movies. It's just like, you know, because if you grew up in that era, you remember seeing these stupid movies on World of World of Disney, or you remember being taken to like one of these matinees where it was like showing, cause they would come back every once in a while. Like not mostly not the live action. Mostly they did that for the animation, but every once in a while they'd be stuck on a double bill with something. Again, it's like a fascinating insight, especially if you know the context of an entire philosophy of kind of like, factory movie making there are little bits in a lot of the better movies and this is one of them it's kind of a meta nod to the process itself it's like you know the whole like last act of the north avenue irregulars i think actually is like without any asterisks a really decent movie 
Like it, it, it actually works on its own terms without any kind of kid movie, like, you know, nostalgia cloud or anything. It, it's the demolition derby stuff, you know, from a technical aspect is kind of amazing. Like what they do in that sequence, I don't know how long it took them to shoot. I know being that it's like a, you know, a Ron Miller live action Disney movie. I'm sure they did it in like a third of the time that they should have, but it's really good stunt work, really good effects. I mean, a lot of it's like that terrible, you know, proto blue screen stuff. Uh, and you can always tell when one of those process shots shows up, but a lot of it is not a lot of it, just like the way it's cut, the way it's scored, the way it's acted. Like I, I was found myself watching and being like, did they board this all? And then I, you know, read your transcripts of the interviews that you're doing. And they did in fact board this movie and they had to have, because there's a lot of intricate like smashing of stuff and and big physical gags in this last like kind of demolition derby sequence. And it's impressive. It's just impressive. I don't I don't think I've ever seen a movie like that or a sequence like that in a movie. For me, the movie is least effective when it gets into that big chase demolition derby stuff because with the exception of where they cut into the characters, the interaction of the women is what makes the movie for me and always has so it is good but it's for me the least effective part of the movie just because i just it but i think a lot about a lot of movies like the third act always seems to go a little out of control but the setup is almost always the best part of the film i loved cb stuff when i was a kid so you know in fucking like bj and the bear and stuff convoy i loved that kind of stuff Absolutely. And then my dad was a race car driver and I used to go with him to the races and they would do the demolition derbies on Friday nights. And so I was just all about having a demolition derby in this movie. So this ticked so many boxes for me. So when they get to that as the finale, I'm like, yes, please. This is fantastic. And then that's also, you know, the third act is where Ruth Buzzy shows up and she is phenomenal. I love her in this. I mean, she is always great, but when she shows up in this one and I love that she looks so prim and proper and that she ends up being a CBer and just helps out with everything. And then that the reverend that's in the back seat ends up helping out with stuff. You know, like, Oh, look at the dust is still, still, still settling over there. It's wonderful. I love how they all group up together and they're all just trying to solve this case. And it, like I said, it ticks all those boxes. I totally forgot that she was in this till her name to pop up in the credits. But I think that's a strength of the movie is that you could take her out and it would still be just as good. Like I, even though she, she brings what she always brought, like I don't think the movie would lose anything without her. I would, I would lose something without her. <laughs> Maybe that's me having to see Skate Town USA way too many times. I mean, this whole movie is just stocked full of great actors, even to like that Louisa Moritz that shows up um, when he's going around trying to find members of the church and goes there and Reverend Hill gets completely turned off. Why? Because she likes yoga. What? And it's funny. He's like, you know, you can still be a Christian and like yoga, maybe <laughs> it's sort of, sort of like sort of iffy on that. We've come a long way since then, but yeah, I kept expecting uh, her to break into dance. 10 looks three from like, you know, yeah. from chorus line. <laughs> of course, like, she looked a lot like Audrey Landers basically is what she, she looked does, an awful yeah. lot like Audrey Landers, another great actor from that era who had like kind of a career. 
doing this or that, doing like she was came from theater, but then she did a bunch of television and did all this. And, you know, I'm sure she has a very nice house in the Valley. With Louisa Moritz, when she popped up in the credits, I was, I didn't remember her being in this, but I was expecting her to be in more than one scene. But then when that came up, I was like, Oh yeah, that was it. <laughs> but I didn't know who she was back then, but like I do today, but yeah. She she was good. I, I wish she actually were part of the group, although she wouldn't step foot in a church. I mean, as soon as you start to do yoga, you're shaking the devil's hand. It's the gateway stretch. Talk about the CB radio stuff. I love what you know the Hicksploitation movies, as they're called. And she's she's in a one that I really love called Six Pack Annie. Oh, I've uh, heard of that one. Have you seen that? No, I haven't seen it. I've heard of it though. Yeah, Moritz is in it, but um. One of the Mike Hammer girls. Lindsay Bloom? Uh, Lindsay Bloom, yes, is the star of that. She is phenomenal. That's a fun one. Why didn't Disney release a Blu-ray like collection, the Ron Miller era? I would have paid so much money for that, like just like every live action Disney movie made from like what is it, sixty-six or whatever, sixty-seven to nineteen eighty. It would end with Watcher in the Woods. It would begin with like Dexter Riley or probably or something like that. One of those, one of those like movies when they started all this craziness, that darn cat it would have started with that darn cat, everything from that darn cat to watcher in the woods on Blu-ray. Mike, have we missed any of the inappropriate things we need to talk about? The only other thing I can remember is uh, mother Carlisle using the G word gypsies. Oh yeah. At the wedding. <laughs> <laughs> No, I still hear people wedding. say like "jip" and stuff, and I'm like, "Oh, you probably shouldn't say that." But yeah. Mm-hmm. So, can you say this film had gypsies, tramps, and thieves in it? Yeah, yeah, kind of <laughs> did. I appreciate too that during that demolition derby, that it is uh, Reverend Hill who gets uh, thrown into Mister Rocco's car and then has to wrestle him, and it's really it's the with uh, a gun. Yeah, with the gun, and that it's really the uh, retractable roof that does them in there. But uh, by the way, I want to talk about the physics of Edward Herman somehow lurching. Okay, what, those three shots. I'm just like, I'm not buying this. No, they should have reshot this. This is bad. It's just like he flies up over the car, and then he's on the car, and then he's in the other car, and it's like, mm-hmm. no, it sounds legit to me. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't even think the Matrix could pull off that. It's like, it was just like, no, you, I don't know how you get into that car, but this is not the way. I don't know how tall he was, but he looked, I mean, he, to me, he looks tall. He is tall. So you remember the Lost Boys? I, yeah. He was always just like, you know, hello, Diane Weist. I'm a foot taller than you. It's funny you say that because when he died, everyone's like, oh, Edward Herman from Lost Boys and Gilmore Girls. And I'm like, no, North Avenue regular. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Exactly. Come on. But to your point from earlier, as far as how quickly this movie runs, I mean, as soon as they're done defeating Mr. Rocca, they are back at the church announcing that it's going to close. Wait, nope. Here comes the car. Everybody piles out. Oh, wait, nope. We're going to reopen the church and we're going to reinstate you as the reverend and everything's good. And Susan Clark is now your girlfriend. And off we go. And boom, the the end. That is Billy Wilder. Never stick around. Wasn't that one of his things? Like, don't stick around. Yeah, that was to- I, that's what I thought of. I was like, this is like the end of some like it hot. Play us out. Strawberry shortcake. <laughs> We're gone. Take off your wig. Nobody's perfect. The end. Goodbye. There's not a wasted shot in this movie. No, it's no. super. It's very well cut. It's very efficient and a very well acted. You know, despite that whole, I have to say the opening bit of business with the steeple 
it's a bit much. It's like, there's a lot of, there's, you have to like, you know, okay. I mean, I know I'm in a Disney movie, but come on. I mean, come on. I think it sets the tone. Cause what I was worried about now, even though I'd seen it many a time and worried about back then was that it was going to be, you know, depressing, like mom's dead. Are you going to find a new mom and all that stuff? And they don't go there. So they, it kind of subverts your expectations. I, I don't know if it did it consciously, but I think that, that, that sequence had to be there for that reason. All right, guys, let's go ahead and take a break, and we're going to play a trio of interviews. First up, we'll hear from director Bruce Bilson. After that, we'll hear from writer Don Tate. And last but not least, we'll hear from the grave, the star of the North Avenue Irregulars, Edward Herman. And we'll be back with all of those right after these brief messages. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and there just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. Dark Destinations is a travelogue podcast unlike any other. Cities and towns distinguished by their oddity and the fact that they don't exist. Join us at Dark Destinations, where we explore the most infamous locations to be found in fiction. From Arkham to Zyera and every point in between, we risk life, limb, and our sanity for your listening pleasure. Dark Destinations can be found at fathermalone.com and on iTunes. In 1985, a curious phenomenon occurred. The Twilight Zone returned to television. Featuring all new tales of mystery and imagination from the minds of Ray Bradbury, Harlan Ellison, George R.R. R. Martin, and Stephen King. Dreams for Sale, the Twilight Zone 85 podcast looks back at that land of shadow and substance and re-examines the groundbreaking successor to Rod Serling's legacy. Featuring new interviews with the show's creators and cast, Dreams for Sale can be found on iTunes and at TwilightZone85.com. Dreams for Sale. We'll be waiting for you in the Twilight Zone. The Commando is now available on digital and on demand. In this edge-of-your-seat thriller starring Michael Jai White and Mickey Rourke, an elite DEA agent must protect his family from money-hungry criminals after finding $3 million in their home. Buy or rent The Commando and watch it today. Rated R from Paramount Pictures. Welcome to the interview portion of the show. First up, we are going to hear from director Bruce Bilson. This was your first feature film? Yes. I'm a television director. I'm an episodic guy, and that was my career. And at the beginning of it, it was always comedy. Well, I was an assistant director for 10 years and worked at Desilu. Yeah, I worked on The Lucy Show and Red Skelton and December Bride and Armis Brooks, all those old shows. And then I ended up on the Andy Griffith show, and I was the first assistant director on that for the first three years, which was one of my favorite jobs. Bob Sweeney, who directed it, 
started his own company and we made a pilot of which I was the line producer and it didn't sell, but we got a show called The Baileys of Balboa from CBS and Bob Sweeney, my mentor, gave me three of those to direct and off I went and fortunately the next year I hit Get Smart followed by Hogan's Heroes and I started doing all the sitcoms. So up until... All in the family started everybody going to videotape with multiple cameras. And I didn't do well at that. I didn't enjoy it. And so I started doing hour shows. And before I was through, I was doing both. And I ended up doing almost 400 episodes, taking this century off. That's about the whole Bruce Wilson story. How'd you first start off? How'd you decide this is what I want to do? I want to get into television. First of all, it's the family business. Jack Warner brought my dad to Hollywood from working in New York publicity for him and made him head of the trailer department in 1932. So he was always in the business. And then I went to UCLA and became a theater arts major and graduated as a motion picture major. And, uh, went into the Air Force in a photo unit, and that's been my life has been in. I was assistant editor on uh, You've Had Your Life with Groucho Marx. I'm sort of a history of mid-century network television, I guess. And then my son is a writer and director and created The Flash and Viper and several other TV shows, which he was very generous saying, take as many as you want, Pop. And my daughter produces commercials. And my granddaughter is Rachel Bilson, who's starring in that show, Heart of Dixie. So it's a family business. And my wife was an actress when I met her. So there you go. Now, before you did a feature for Disney, you were doing a lot of TV movies as well, kind of mixing it up between series and TV movies, right? Some, yeah. And what happened, an actor I show, I can't remember his name, who worked at Disney a lot, and Ron Miller, who was running it at the time, asked him who was a good comedy director, and he said me. And I went in for an interview with Ron Miller, and he said, oh, you're not as old as I expected, because I had done a lot of work. Anyhow, that started it, and I got the job, and it was the best part of a year of my life. Making a movie is a big, hard job. You get in, and you get the job, and they give you a script. Now, the script on North Avenue, this was the time when CB radios, you know, what's your handle, over and out, and all that stuff, Smokey and the Bandit, and so on. And the biggest part of the original script, and I think Don Tate will confirm that, I don't know if you've talked to him yet, it was to take advantage of that CB radio stuff, and I never read the book, North Avenue, but it was to put that together and make it, you know, all these ladies on their radios. And that was the script, and we just started working on it. And I can't remember what we did, but I know we what happened on, and Tom Leach, who was the producer, we would meet on weekends in my condo. I was recently divorced and living there talk about where the script was going, and then Don would go home and write it, and the next week we'd work on that and go on. That's how the script evolved. The rewrite, that's how the rewrite evolved. And I'm not trying to take any credit away from anybody. It was just we worked together and we came up with the script, 
while that was going on, we were trying to put the pieces together, and we had a big problem called the church that we were going to burn down and hang a guy off the roof and all that stuff. And the location guy went out, a very experienced fellow, I don't remember his name, a lot of names I don't remember, but he went out. And he kept bringing pictures of churches, and we said, well, how? Well, no, it doesn't have a steeple. No, it doesn't. Well, how can you? And that went on, you know, every several days, he'd come in with another church and show us pictures. Then one day, John Mansfield, who was the head of the art department, came in with the drawing, and he said, what would you think of this? And I said, well, that's terrific. Where is it? He said, well... Let me show it to you. And we went out on the back lot, and there was a southern mansion. And he says, we're going to pick this up and turn it sideways, lengthwise, and then we'll put a tower, a steeple up on the top of it, and we'll put a little building sticking out for the school and the offices. And that's what they did. They made that church on the back lot. You know, you didn't do things like that in TV. So there were a lot of wondrous things about directing a movie, especially at Disney. One of the most impressive was that nobody ever parked in my parking space. That doesn't happen at studios, you know? And not only that, I had two, one on the parking lot and one by the stage. So that was impressive. It was funny days at Disney's. They had a boys club, so to speak. They had a little restaurant up a stairway somewhere up in that building where guys had lunch and where you could say shit, magazines with semi-naked ladies in them. And, oh, it was really funny at a pool table and no women. When I went back later doing something else over there, that had all changed. But it was interesting to me. And so that was the story of the church. And then the interior we shot at a church that's between my house and the studio. (laughs) I mean, it's a neighborhood church in North Hollywood that is friendly to movie studios, and uh, we shot the interior there. The other big, big, big thing was the opening physical action sequence. And that was another new experience for me. They have a a graphic artist, you know, does uh, storyboarding, yes. He and I started working together, and he was very clever, and we worked out that whole sequence beat by beat, and then the dialogue was added and so on. And I, there was uh, great big, huge rolling blackboards, you know, like they'd have bring out in the front of a schoolroom or something. But it was a pin board, and we'd pin up all these pictures, and somewhere I've got a copy of that. And then we went to production and had to decide what piece of set we needed for each beat of that. So if you look at it again, and I just looked at it, you know, there was the top of the steeple itself as a separate unit where he could ring the bell and uh, all that stuff. Eventually the ladies got up there and the ladder went in and out, and that was the biggest piece. But, you know, there's a piece of him hanging on the rope going up and down. That was on the stage with a piece of the side built. And then the inside of it was built where the ladies went, and that was not an accident that the ladder went and broke through the wall as they were trying to get up the steps, you know. So every beat of that, there were about six or seven different little pieces of set to make that work, and some against the blue sky, you know, and whatever. 
And we worked on it. Little bits and pieces were put all over the schedule whenever they were built and where they were on the stage, and that had to be removed and some other piece brought in. So that was a very big deal. Of course, the casting was wonderful, and I had very little to do with it. The major characters, the ladies, Cloris and Barbara and all of them, were casting deals. They, The studio decided, and I talked about it a little, but the studio said, okay, we can get her for so much, and they put together that team of ladies. A lot of the smaller parts I was very involved in because a lot of those people were sort of my stock company, people I worked with all the time, and I liked, and I knew they were good, and I've just had fun seeing them all as I was looking at it just now. Yeah, it was really nice seeing uh, Alan Hale Jr. show up there. Yes. Nice man. And a lot of people there, Steve Franken and Dave. It doesn't look like any of it was shot inside of a studio. Well, that's, um, that's another story, Leonard South. Lenny was Alfred Hitchcock's camera operator on all the movies. And at the last movie, he was the director of photography on Hitchcock's last movie. And he was doing TV, and I met him on a show called, I guess it was Please Don't Eat the Daisies. They made a TV series. And Lenny was a cinematographer, and I had just started sailing. And he was a sailor, and we became buddies. And we worked a lot. Whenever I could choose, I chose Lenny. And uh, we did that together, that movie. And he helped me. Like, in those days, doing a dolly shot, where you laid track was a big deal in television because we worked on such short schedules. But suddenly I was doing some of that, starting to do something like that. He said, Bruce, it's a feature. You want to dolly track? We'll put a dolly track. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Lenny. And so he was a great guy and helped me buy a boat <laughs> and was a great friend. And it's, unfortunately, he, uh, he got Alzheimer's, and he's he's gone now, but he was a good guy. And, oh, another thing was that intersection where everybody went in a different direction. Finding that was very difficult. Finding a place where you had that many streets coming together instead of just two crossing. And we had a big crane. We got up there and shot that. I can't imagine the level of coordination that you needed to have with all of those. I mean, just so much of the film takes place in a car and just all of those shots and getting all that straight. It's all, you know, it's all doable. It, it, we we know how to do most of it, and now they do stuff where they don't, <laughs> that is beyond me. I mean, I just saw the life of Pi. Oh, my God. Look at that tiger, man. It's incredible. You know, that's how you make a movie. You have a problem, and you figure out a way to solve it, and what the pieces you need are available. That shot where they're all getting ready to go in their cars and giving each other the thumbs up, that happened. That was not in the script. That suddenly all those cars were there, and somebody suggested that. I don't even think it was my idea, but I thought it worked great. Recommend Jaguar. One of the things, one of the worst days of the whole prep was doing wardrobe with Cloris. Because she, Tom Leach and I were locked in a dressing room with her for two days with her saying, and you know, she's got a mind that goes everywhere at once. And uh, it was really fun watching her in this movie because, boy, she was always in there. 
I mean, the biggest joke in the movie for me was when she broke her fingernails. Yeah, that was her idea, I think. That was one of those things that came to happen because she had she made the fingernails that way. That's who she wanted to be, you know? And so there they were. And then that particular thing was done on the stage with a green screen or whatever. It was a very strange Disney project. But anyhow, that's where that joke came from. Give her credit for it. It's an interesting film in that it's kind of an ensemble film, but all the actors, I mean, there aren't that many scenes where they all are together. Right. How was the chemistry with everybody working together when they were together? Well, the first or second morning of the show, we were in the park with Barbara Harris and her kids and the Little League and the station wagon. And Cloris came later in the day and she walked onto the stage and Barbara said, oh, hello. And she said to Barbara, why are you wearing a wig? And Barbara was somebody who played off of that sort of insecurity anyhow. So that was like a very strange start. (laughs) But all of the rest of it was fine. It was fine. We had a good time. You know, we had the little music and, but everybody got along and just chorus is wonderful, but a handful. Not mean. But a handful. And I mean, we did that wardrobe. We'd say, oh, yeah, that's good. She said, well, wait till I show you this. And she'd go in and change again. And then she'd say, well, wait a minute. Now, you know, I can change this. You like the other one? Well, maybe I can put, you know. And it went on like that, like, for six hours, twice. And Tom and I came up. I said, that's the worst day of prep I ever spent in my career. Just exhausting. <laughs> she was, she could exhaust you. I worked with her. Several times in several places, we did a show called Nut House, which she was also in, that I did. How was it working with uh, Edward Herman? It was fine. We had no trouble with anybody. And everybody was, I say, you know, what is it, how many years later, 40? Oh, why did I let him do that? (laughs) You know, I was just watching the beginning, and I saw Ed Herman do something that I thought when he was rooting for the horse in the betting place. I let him get out of hand. I thought he lost all dignity. It could have been better. But I sometimes I see stuff. What happens is on television as it is today with DVRs and TiVo and all that stuff, I put my name up there as a director in the search thing. And whenever one of my shows comes on, they record it. You know, all of a sudden the odd couple started appearing. And so I look at some of these and... Some of them I say, wow, I just, was it yesterday or the day before, that girl showed up. I did one, and I remembered very little about it except Marlo, that she was a little difficult, and it was like she was going her way, and I was just there to say print. But, you know, not an unpleasant experience, just a tense one, and I looked at the show. It was pretty good. I was pleased with myself, so you never know. What's going to show up? With you, it must be a real crapshoot. You've got so many different titles that could come up. Well, they don't all run anymore. You know, there are many, many shows that have never seen the light of day again. I was curious about the uh, destruction of the church. I had read that there were some problems when you guys blew it up. There were no real problems that I remember. I was reading a vicious internet rumor that it had to be done twice. Negative. Negative. No, I don't 
It wasn't blown up, you know, we just burned it. Working with fire is never pleasant to me, because it always feels like it's going to get away, you know. And you do it as you go through your career here and there, but not my favorite thing. But I'm trying to remember, well, we did it at night. I remember doing the scene afterwards where the two of them were sitting on the running board, so to speak, of the fire engine. The little dirt on their faces. <laughs> Vague, but I don't think so. And we certainly never blew it up. <laughs> it started burning. And I don't think we did it twice. We, you know, if there was a false start and we stopped, and but I don't know that. I don't remember anything like that. I'll tell you something that just flashed into my head. The run was cut short. Well, I'll put it a different way. The movie was doing better than they expected. And a big, big Disney movie, Bed Knobs and Doors, whatever that was, Broomsticks? Right, Bed Knobs and Broomsticks, yeah. Yeah, and that was coming out four weeks later, and that took North Avenue out, or it could have had maybe a little better life. But it's so funny, you know, it made the list of movies that earned $4 million. And today, if you earn $4 million, you're really in the tank, you know? <laughs> But I remember being proud of being on that list, toward the bottom, I admit, but on the $4 million movie list. Well, not bad for your first time out of the gate. Right. I only did one other, and it never got out of the gate. That was called Chattanooga Choo Choo. It came out opposite Pretty in Pink or something. But it was a failure before the weekend was over. George Kennedy and Joe Namath and Barbara Eden and some young people. Oh, you know, we, we had let's talk some car stuff. That was interesting because we had a big budget for cars. Cloris Bob, what she drive a Lincoln Continental, I think. We had at least two of the. We had at least two of everything, and we had that Jaguar, that old Jaguar that we banged up. Barbara had her station wagon, and then we got the. I want to say the black lady because I don't remember her name, and I'm embarrassed, but. You know, her husband ran a used car lot or something, and I, we got to make up all the things to put on the windows. Oh, another thing. Uh, I think everybody who works in the movie business has a nightmare sometime in their life when they can't find the location where they're supposed to be. And on North Avenue, it, I, I, when I started out as an assistant director, there was a fellow who had been an MGM first assistant, and his nightmare was he had a thousand extras at the Pasadena station and the train went to the Glendale station. You know, that kind of thing. And I had to, always had this nightmare that I couldn't find the location and I knew everybody was there waiting for me. And on North Avenue, it came true. And uh, I was driving and on the Long Beach, it was Long Beach, we shot a lot of that stuff, the grittier stuff. And, the freeway was awful, and I said, okay, I'm not going to go to the parking lot. I'm going to go right to the set. I picked the locations. I know where it is, right? And I drove there to the one that was first on the, and I was, you know, 20 minutes late, which is really bad for me, and the whole company, nothing happens till you get there, and I went to that corner, and nobody was there. So I looked at the call sheet again. I said, oh, go west on 7th Street. So I go on 7th, on well, some street to get to 7th Street, and you can't go west. It's one way going east. And it was like that. It was terrible. And finally, I got there, and I was like, 
35 minutes late, which is just inexcusable in my book. And there's a guy there, morning, Bruce, you need a ride to the set? Nobody's saying, where the hell have you been? Nothing, right? And anyhow, we drove up, we got to the set, and uh, did the day's work. But it was really weird. It was the nightmare come to life. You've got such a great performance out of Patsy Kelly. I love her and the interaction with her and her husband on screen. Mm-hmm. Whenever they're on screen, it is terrific. Well, it's really interesting because I was just watching her again. Now, Doug Fowley, I met when I was assistant director on, I was actually second assistant director on Wyatt Earp a long time ago in the 50s. And he had been a handsome, leading man, kind of bad guy, good guy with a neat little mustache, you know. And he had a gag. He would take his teeth out and be this other old guy, you know. So he just played the hell out of being in drag and all that. And she, I had never met, but she was, you know, from MGM. She was the maid in every movie. All that mugging she does is just left over from those old MGM movies, if you look at it. But I learned in my directing life that actors who grew up in the studio system were much more professional in terms of knowing hitting their marks and where the lights were and knowing their lines, all that stuff that people who were under contract to the studios, Doris Day, for instance, all that stuff, Charlton Heston, and bit players who had been in those things like Patsy Kelly was. And she got on that motorcycle and we dragged her around Pasadena doing all those scenes. And somewhere she broke a rib. And she never told me till we were through shooting, getting on or getting off or going over a bump or something. But uh, trooping. How was it working for the Disney company? You told me that you got your parking spot and everything. This was kind of a weird time for them. And doing these live action films, were, it was bigger than their animation at this point, if memory serves. It was a big deal to me, you know, uh, to make a movie and make a Disney movie and have some choices that you don't often have when you're directing television. You come to a show and uh, everything's there already. You don't decide what who's a cameraman or who you want for an assistant director or any of those things, you know. Although I guess I did get my assistant. What, what was, uh, I guess I had him from the beginning, and his name is escaping me right now, but he was a good friend. We did Hawaii Five O together. And he was my assistant. And my good right arm and my pal on that show. What else? And editing, you know, you get into all that stuff too, and and that's another whole story. And and the editor was also a sailor, <laughs> so that was good. He had sailed to, with uh, Roy Disney, you know, who was a big sailor. He had sailed to on the Honolulu race, the Hawaii race, a number of times, and I was trying to wheedle a ride to maybe go with them, but that never happened. But in that post-production, you know, they make changes and they go through and, and Tom Leach went through, I think, frame by frame after me and made some good stuff and some stuff I disagreed with. But that always happens. There's always a little of each. So I started going, you know, I was back into doing TV, but then I'd come over and see where we were and work on the editing some more. So it was, uh, before it came out, it was a long that when I say it was like a year, it really was. From the day I walked in the door to the day I walked into the premiere. How was the premiere? 
I'm trying to remember. It was in Santa Barbara, and I got sick. I got some kind of food poisoning. You know, they had a lot of hors d'oeuvres, and I remember that more than how it went. But I think I missed the next. It was like on a weekend Sunday, you know, and we drove back from Santa Barbara being sick and all night and couldn't go to work. I only missed a day and a half in my whole career of shooting for being sick. So that's something I was sort of proud of. And in both cases, it was my stomach. When we first meet the reverend uh, in the film, he's got the two kids. Right. And they kind of drop out for a while. Were they supposed to be in there a little bit more? I don't remember. At one point, I was rewatching the film with my wife about a week ago, and she's like, didn't he have kids? <laughs> and it's like, yeah, they're around here somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Melora Hardin grew up to be a good actress and a beautiful young woman. And she's probably middle-aged now, but I ran into her somewhere. Oh, she was in a movie my son did called The Rocketeer. He wrote that with his partner. She was in it. She sang or something. She was a blonde, pretty girl in there. And then they did, you know, they did The Flash and... Viper and The Sentinel, those are the three shows that my son and his partner did. They're comic book guys. <laughs> well, thank you for your time. I really do appreciate it. Okay, Mike. I'm here. You've got my number, so let me know what happens. and Send me a copy and ask questions if you want to. Up next, we're going to hear from screenwriter Don Tate. Tell me how you got the gig. I had been uh, there at Disney, and uh, first introduction to them was I sold a um, a, a treatment of uh, a picture that I called Paniolo. It's uh, Hawaiian for Espanol, and that became a picture called Castaway Cowboy. It has a little more history than, than that, but uh, they gave me a book, uh, Apple Dumpling Gang, which I adapted, and I about two other books that I got off the shelf that other people had had, had trouble adapting to the screen. And uh, one of them was what the, the, the North Avenue Irregulars was one of them. Apparently, you know, it came together. I did get a CD of it, and I saw it last night, so it's fairly fresh in my mind. You know, I, I know the guy that uh, Ron Miller was... Uh, the guy that produced it, he was sort of the head of production. He married Walt's daughter, Diane, but he got replaced down the line by Eisner. Because of that, I was pretty successful at even my original ones, concepts, and uh, the adaptations. I was, where others had failed, I was able to get, get it on the screen, and uh, I was uh, hot for a while. <laughs> so... But with a director that had never done anything for, of mine before named Bruce Bilson, I didn't know him, but uh, in seeing it last night, he did uh, make some contributions and that sort of thing, you know, that uh, sort of like in the demolition derby uh, towards the end there and things that, you know, you don't probably put down on paper or visualize and the director kind of takes off on that sort of stuff. So, uh, he did a good job. There was a lady reviewer. I don't think she was a regular staff member, but she got a job 
reviewing for the L.A. Times, and she gave rather an unfavorable review. I think this would be in the mid-70s sometime when uh, women were coming into their own and there was uh, all that uh, attitude about women. And uh, so she said that uh, I had made the women look foolish and silly, and uh, I didn't really have an answer to that. But then I got a letter from the... uh, Reverend Hill, who had written the the original book, and he said it was right on the nose, uh, Don. It uh, that's just the way they were. Uh, I was pleased by that, and I was sort of tempted to send that into the Times and uh, let them know that there was their reviewer that was a little bit off, not me. But I didn't get around to it. <laughs> Writers today are getting more, as you might notice, a they write things and they get into the directing it and uh, the whole thing. And I once read one writer had said, "You, when you write something, you get visions of what you know that your people are doing, and uh, mental visions. And then you try to get your actors to come as close to that as possible." And that was true. I had thought about directing, but uh, those days have come and gone. I think. And those days, really, the um, the writer, once they got the script, which was hard to get, but once they got it, <laughs> you were really, to a certain extent, persona non grata. But I was, I did become a, a contract writer there at Disney, which was a rarity. And one year, apparently, I wrote four of the Disney's six releases that year. And I guess they all were successful in the theaters. But nobody told that. I just learned <laughs> learned that uh, uh, kind of from another guy. But nobody told me that. And then people would come around to me and say, you know, can you give me a hand with this script here? You know, I, I didn't do as, as much as I probably should have. Uh, I think if if the if Miller, the boss, and the blizzard that thing had, had sent me down and said, Don, would you help me? or help us with this script and see if we can get it going, uh, then I would do it. But I, I did seem to have a, a knack for getting something on the screen uh, that uh, resonated with the public. Uh, I'm probably not the greatest writer in the world, but I I, I was good at construction, and I uh, would know what kind of uh, situations would as I said resonate with, with the public and and that was what made it work you know there was a, a makeup man Phil Lundy was a makeup man there who belonged to the California Yacht Club and he used to be Rita Hayworth's boyfriend and so he was he was somebody you know and um, somebody said I belong to the California Yacht Club Don if you want to get married down there uh, go ahead and do it well because things were a little strained about being married, I, I forgot to invite him to the wedding. Or I was leaving it up to my wife anyway. But then he he, he kept saying, so he, kept gunning. he wasn't too happy about that, understandably. He would say in the projection room, we were looking at the dailies, well, there's no funny dialogue on these scripts. I said, what do you, they can't afford Neil Simon. And I, and I must say, it was um, my strong suit was more in construction and and then the the concept and I, I couldn't think of an answer then but I've I've thought of it since then 
Did you ever see um, Home Alone? There wasn't a funny line in that picture, but it was a, one of the most successful motion picture comedies that was ever put on. And it was just one funny situation after another that, that made it so successful. If I ever had any talent, it was in that area that I had funny situations. And in a sense, when uh, a lot of people were failing to get uh, the Apple Dumpling Gang on the screen, and when I saw it, I said, a sheriff in the book, a sheriff in the school marm or the librarian inherit a, uh, these kids. They get stuck with these kids. But I said, that's not funny because they are successful. I mean, they're reliable, substantial people, and they will take care of the kids. So I went around to an old friend of mine who was a story analyst and told him the problem. And he said, how about a gambler? And I said, bingo. That, that's, that's it. So I turned it into a gambler. And that's often the way that made things work. People get in a groove. They pick up these stories and they try to beat it in an unbeatable situation. Keep knocking the heads against the wall and you just got to back away from it. Find something that's in the same area and come up with a, uh, a fresh slant and then you can get going. So, uh, that worked with a, um, another, I'm getting away from North Avenue here, but a thing called Snowball Express. A lot of people had tried to lick that and they, kept sticking with the book called Chateau Bon Vivant. I just got off and found a a situation uh that uh wouldn't work and was still in the same vein and uh got it on the screen. So uh, I I don't remember really what the book was in North Avenue regulars. Uh it'd be interesting to read it to see how much it changed, but uh it was a fun picture. You know, I was thinking of a lot of chatter there early on and, and whatnot, and I said, oh, this doesn't seem to be coming alive, but uh, it finally, it did towards the, the middle and the end there, I think, you know. Everybody was pretty broad in, in the piece, but uh, it's not Les Miserables, <laughs> but it was, it was entertaining. I asked the lady that looked at it with me, do you think the people, because I'm living in a, for uh, want of a better word, a retirement home. It's a senior living place. Uh, I said, do you think they'd like this here? I've shown two pictures here, Apple Dumpling Gang and, uh, well, it wasn't Snowball Express, but uh, another one. And, and they did like it. It's light stuff. And frequently, you know, the lights go down. There's maybe 15 people in the theater. The lights come up and the theater's empty. <laughs> they, they have just, just stolen away in the night. But that wasn't the case with my pictures, and I was pleased about that. Uh, it, it was fun. I I once, um, these are little things that I uh, cling to in my autumnal years, but uh, there was a big meeting at the hotel in Beverly Hills, and we were talking about amalgamating uh, the uh, writers and the producers and whatnot. And, and we, we were jammed in there like sardines, uh, getting past the door. And, I, and there were two guys talking behind me. And uh, I heard one say, 
together. I, I've got a young writer that can put a screenplay together better than Don Tate. And uh, I turned around to see who was yanking my chain, and I didn't recognize either one of them. They didn't know me. But I guess at that time, I did have somewhat of a reputation for uh, my construction of a screenplay. But today, I, I must say, I can't get arrested. I, I don't have an agent, and uh, nobody's too... Though I will say this, I did write a story about trolls, a screenplay, and I sent it over to, this is just about a year or so ago, I sent it over to DreamWorks, and they said, it sent it back for proper representation, and I got a lawyer to do it, they said, no one has to be an entertainment attorney, they sent it back, and it was back and forth. Anyway, I finally got a call from legal saying, well, we're going in a different direction with that concept, Don, but we feel we have a right to your research. So, when DreamWorks comes out with a troll picture, which they will in the next couple of years, uh, it'll be because of that. And uh, I haven't uh, uh, gone to court a couple of times over things. I uh, Some very big law firm represented me in, uh, on a contingency basis uh, on Bull Durham because I had written a, a screenplay about, in this case, was Industrial League softball, but they, he just made a small-time baseball, and there were 30 similarities. In a, I mean, matter of fact, the name of my heavy was Bull Durham, and they checked it eight ways from Sunday, we so we went to court and they took it on the on the, say on a contingency basis, we're suing for five million. The the judge said, "Well, I see all the similarities, Mr. Tate, but you still have improved access." And my script was out there floating around Hollywood, and I have learned one thing since then: uh, don't ever send out your last copy of a script, no matter whether the guy swears on his knees and across his heart that he'll have it back to you tomorrow. Don't let it out of your hand and have some follow-up paper trail because uh, I wrote a, uh, you know, yeah, some record, and that was why I didn't have the a, any kind of a record. I just handed it to a producer and he handed it around and this and that over at Universal. But uh, I wrote a, um, they came to me to write a, Avalon Funicello thing, and I wrote one called Back to the Beach, or Beach Ball, but uh, then Paramount did the same thing. At that time, I had a nice house in Malibu on the beach and the whole bit, and I looked out the window and saw all the movie paraphernalia, and I went down there, and there was Avalon. He t- our eyes met, and he went back into the his trailer but uh, we sued on that one, and we won that one. So uh, it's a jungle out there, as somebody once said. A, so I, I'm surprised that as much of that goes on as you know as, as there is. I, so I'm I'm careful these days in having a leading a paper trail if I send something out, and I I don't know whether my stuff still holds up or or not, you know, and. Uh, I think it does myself. But one thing, I will say this, in March I'll be 93. I'm no kid anymore. And uh, But I was heartened by the fact that I read where Herman Wook, who wrote Kane Mutiny way back when, 
but he's turned in another book just here recently at 97. So that gives us all a little bit of encouragement to hang in there. But he's got a name. He wrote through something, uh, Winds of War or something like that, too. So he said he's proud of that. More than ever, I realize you do need an agent or, or somebody to get you to sell the thing. I saw a little thing on the History Channel and uh, inspired me to write a pirate story, which I think would be makes a great picture. But uh, selling it is something else these days. So. But w- when I was hot, I will tell you kind of an interesting thing. One of my best scripts, it didn't really gel on the screen, but I borrowed from uh, Mark Twain. It was uh, called The Spaceman and King Arthur. That was the final title of it. I called it uh, Unidentified Flying Oddball, but it was turning back time, traveling so fast. That's sort of an Einstein theory. And uh, everybody loved that strip, but it had some no talent. People directing it, acting it, and all that, and this didn't come together. And flying back from London, the uh, we, they had little bars upstairs in those days and planes. And the Miller, the head of the studio, invited me up there, and he was offering me the moon because he was, you know, he said key employee retirement and um, stock options and whatnot. And then a guy came up there, and I did it. And hey, Ron, this guy thinks he knows you. And he, Ron said, sit down, Don. But I gave him my seat, Mr. Nice Guy. It never came up again, the offer. And uh, I would have been, uh, that stock had multiplied 25 times at least. As a matter of fact, I would let go about six months later when the thing didn't jail. And oddly enough, too, I had a little thing with a guy... Uh, I, I, well, maybe I'm not a good Disney writer, where the guy took a magazine. He was going to be up in space a long time, and he took a magazine called Playtime, and uh, the thinking man's Playboy. I had a lady in a, a wetsuit, but it was cut off at the at the arms there and cut off at the thighs there, and apparently that upset some churchgoer somewhere quite badly. And uh, the head of the studio, the president of the studio, Card Walker, came in and says, you're going to answer all these letters, Tate, and all, you're going to say this and that. Well, nothing came of that, but I don't think it helped my future at, at Disney. But when I'm thinking about it today, everybody's read the script, and everybody saw the rough cut. But when it, it caused a little trouble for a Disney picture... They uh, needed a whipping boy, and I was the guy because I created it. But they had plenty of opportunity to cut it out if they wanted to. So Miller has said uh, he's he got bumped by Eisner, and uh, he said he's now living in San Francisco, and he runs a winery up there, as Francis Ford Coppola does. He lives in the beach. He said, come on up, we'll have some, give you some good wine, Don. So it hasn't happened yet, but uh, I think I'll take him up on it. Oh, I, I will tell you one thing. I noticed Cloris Leachman was in there when we were doing this a picture. Herbie Goes Bananas, that's a, the little love bug uh, thing, a Volkswagen and 
she was down in, I don't know, the makeup department. There was this guy that I told you about. It was Rita Hayworth. He was the guy that offered his yacht club for me to get married in. Cloris Leachman was there, and this guy, Bob Schiffer was his name. Myself and another guy from publicity. Cloris says, who's going to sleep with me on this location? And <laughs> a dead silence. Finally, uh, this guy, Bob Schiffer, said, well... Uh, if somebody will lift me on, I will. So he, <laughs> when I, he didn't get invited to the wedding, he started gunning for me. And, and so he sent Cloris Leachman up to Ron Miller's office. And he, I was summoned to Miller's office. I got down there and there was Cloris Leachman. And she said, Cloris says there's no funny dialogue in this picture, Don. And I realized immediately that... Um, this guy who had not been invited to the wedding and put her up to it, he was after my ass. But it didn't help my future anyway. They they started sometimes getting guys to try to jazz up the dialogue. But it served a purpose, and if I got a one-liner in there now and then, uh, it was fine. Uh, when, when I saw her, I don't know. She's, she's not my favorite. I think she overdoes it a lot, but... Um, when you first wrote um, North Avenue Irregulars, I had read that there was a lot more uh, CB kind of culture to it. Is that true? Yeah, I was. You know, I, I, I'd forgotten about that uh, completely. You know, and, and then I, I heard that they got into that, and then so I, I don't remember whether it was in the book or whether it was my creation. But they were using that towards the end. There was uh, there was a little bit. I know because one of the reviewers mentioned that he kind of liked the line in there where the the secretary said, "What well, are you a minister or are you Batman?" That line wasn't in there, and uh, there was some other bit of a scene there that was been deleted too. So they get kind of ragged, and when these guys they edit these things for a CD or for whatever purposes, they're kind of ruthless, and they have. Little little thought to the artistry involved. There's big jumps here and there, and sometimes things are left out. Anyway, the CB uh, thing, uh, I think that maybe too. I don't remember back, you know, whether there was more or not, but there probably was some. Whether it was my creation, I noticed towards the end there was a little bit of that talk, and one of the ladies said, "Yeah, old buddy, this is CB. What have you?" and that sort of thing. And it would have would have played well, you know. I really don't remember, you know, how much more of that there was in the picture. I don't know how successful it was either. I think it was successful enough to be profitable. Do you have any idea? When I talked to uh, Bruce a little while ago, he was saying that it got Bruce Bilson, the director. Oh, is that right? I, I, I wish he'd directed some of my other things uh, because... Uh, he added some things. Most of the one was written by a lot of my comedies were written by uh, a guy named Maccabee. And uh, at the end of the picture on the rap thing, who was a big comic? He used to play with Tim Conway, big guy. <laughs> He's a funny guy. He used to play with Carol Burnett too. Uh, I can't think of the name. But anyway, he came up to the director and said, "This is a good script." And if it bombs, it's your fault because you don't understand comedy. He directed about three of my comedies, so 
You know, I never got to know him well. He wasn't uh, a guy that was on the lot as sort of an in-house director. But uh, they brought him in, and he did that picture, and I, I wish they'd kept him around. Uh, if you're talking to him again, say that I said hello. I guess they'll remember me. Yeah, he said that uh, you guys got along pretty well and uh, kind of worked on the script together a little bit and sounded like it was a pretty good experience for him as well. Well, I'm glad it was. So I uh, I welcome the opportunity uh, you know, to work with somebody who can embellish and add and, and do things and the stimulate bit. Uh, I'm trying to think of uh, a comic of the Macabee. I said, you know, I saw a comic the other day. It would be good for a picture. And... Um, and he said, what's his name? But a, a Billy Crystal. So I, I said, maybe Billy Crystal. He said, nobody named Billy Crystal is going to be in one of my pictures. So, But um, I'm glad that... Uh, was, I remember a producer coming into my office one time, and however he got around the conversation, he said, all your pictures are profitable, Don. And well, they are. Nobody ever told me that. I got a better parking place, a covered parking place. <laughs> I guess they were afraid that if I knew that they were making money, I might ask for more. As a matter of fact, on the um, the story editor came to me one day and handed me a, thing, a book called Chateau Bon Vivant. So he said, if you can lick this, Don, you can write your own ticket around here. Uh, apparently, I I noticed a change around there because apparently I, uh, I did come up with a treatment that was... Uh, and it became Snowball Express with Dean Jones, and it was also a successful picture. And they said, uh, well, we're going to give you a $100 a week raise. And I said, well, that wasn't quite the uh, the ticket I had in mind. He said, okay, 250 I guess I could have said 5 you know, and he, he, would have, he said, would have said, okay, too. Anyway, it was good to me, and I will say this. Not only did I not appreciate what I had for a freelance writer there at Disney, because I was hot. The pictures were making money. I wrote four of the Disney's six releases one year. You know, they gave me covered parking. And I, I did get some respectable money after a while there. I was not a good company man, I must say. You know, I could have... Who, who was the guy... Um, we used to be over at MGM and uh, Thalberg, Thalberg or something like that. That that they, anyway, he was the good. He was the guy behind uh, Louis B. Mayer. I could have been that for Disney, you know, because getting the scripts going and uh, off the ground, and maybe helping pick ones that were going to resonate with the public and, and, and that sort of thing. And I, I didn't recognize, and I, I think going back to my childhood, I guess, I didn't think I belonged there. Uh, I remember one time I, um, I think they were trying to build up the morale of the company uh, and, and all that. And so Ron Miller had a big fishing tip, so they hired a huge fishing boat. And uh, I put my little bag of clothing and things down in the thing. Next thing I knew, Miller was in the room, and then there's a crowd around Miller, and I thought, oh, my God, you know. And I picked up my, people are going to think I'm kissing up to the boss. So I picked up my bag and went around, and I found another whole stateroom with about four beds in it, and I went in there. But I did not endear myself to Miller by that at all. 
it irritated me. I think he wanted to talk, talk biz, you know, and all that, but he should have, uh, called me into his office one day and started talking about his problems and, uh, all that, but we digress. <laughs> so, but interestingly, and I'm tooting my horn here because, uh, when I wrote Shaggy DA, the same kind of a situation, the, uh, they said, you know, write a sequel to Shaggy Dog, Don. So I'm um, walking around, and today, I went over to the same guy who said, make uh, and uh, make him a gambler. And so I, I said, you got any thoughts? And he said, yeah, Shaggy D.A. I said, thank you. <laughs> and that's what I wrote for Shaggy D.A. And I wrote it myself, and it was made, and it made money, and they made it again. So I, I will say this: they had a, uh, I think they have a copy of the, of the script when the new when they remade Shaggy Dog. There must have been eight or more writers on that thing, including some big name writers like Judd Apatow and that sort of thing, and uh, the uh, and maybe more than that who didn't even qualify for contention. Uh, but nobody ever rewrote me, and uh, other than one Doctor Kildare. Way back when, he maybe got some credit. But out of all the TVs I wrote, maybe, I don't know, uh, I thought it was 70, and then somebody told me it was 40-something. But on my features and whatnot, I was never rewritten. Uh, and that's, you know, uh, in the in Hollywood, that's very uncommon, because if the first script doesn't appeal to somebody, they don't know why, so they just bring in another writer and then another one. And that was the way apparently it was with um, the Shaggy DA. They kept, and it still wound up as my story. A guy running for office turned into a a dog at the wrong times, you know. So, uh, but I I don't know. I can't get arrested today. <laughs> Maybe like Bruce, I'll take a hundred year. <laughs> and last but not least, let's hear from actor Edward Herman. I just kind of wanted to uh, get your thoughts on it as far as what you remember working on the project. Well, it was the old regime. You know, uh, Ron Miller was still head of the studio. He was uh, Walt's uh, son-in-law. And it was still very much a family-run place. I think that was the first year, very shortly after or before, the Disney enterprise, the whole Disney mega business, broke even. And the stockholders were not pleased because they had, you know, Epcot and they had all the amusement parks and the movie side of things just wasn't producing the way they wanted it to produce. And it was shortly after that that the new regime of um, Eisner and and uh, company came in and Geffen and what have you. It was still, some of the old guard was still there. I remember going in to um, read for a voice audition for a, the uh, Fox and the Hound, I think it was a cartoon of theirs, made the old way. And uh, there were literally guys in there, old men who were, I mean, old to me at the time, that were directing me and giving me line readings and all of this. And I, coming from the theater, the, the idea of giving me line reading was just appalling. But they were the guys who did Dumbo, you know, and Snow White. So keep your mouth shut, Herman, and listen to them. And they were so kind. They were so sweet. But I passed going into the into the studio, the sound, uh, they had a, a sound stage there that they tricked out for recording, you know, that they built 
and developed to record the picture. And I passed it this odd little hallway, and in there was a, a wall made out of two by fours and covered in a screen, so you could see through. It was just a bunch of shelves, and on those shelves was looked like just junk, egg beaters and and uh, whistles and and just pieces of iron and glass and crockery and God knows what. And I had a very fun time reading for these guys, and we were talking about the movie business, and I was a young face out there. And I asked what that room was that, that with all those objects on the shelves and they got quiet and they said, well, so-and-so has just died. And he was the key sound effects man at, for, for Mr. Disney for Walt for 50 years. And every one of those objects made a particular sound that was used from the thirties on into the 50s, 60s, 70s. And he was the only one that knew what every single one of them did. <laughs> he never labeled them. He just knew where to go to get the pops or the dings or the dings or the, or the, um, you know, the, the screeches or whatever you needed, he could find. And they were, and every one of those objects in there, nobody had cataloged it. He hadn't written them down and they were sort of lamenting the fact that nobody could do what half of them did. But that's how present Walt was still on the studio when I was there. This was relatively early role for you. I did four movies, at big ones in the in the, the Paper Chase, and Day of the Dolphin, The Great Gatsby, and The Great Wolf of Pepper. And those were all cast out of New York. I was still living in New York. And then I was brought out to do Eleanor and Franklin with Dan Petrie directing. And it was shortly after that. That uh, provided what, what was um, North Avenue seventy six? Uh, came out in seventy nine, so I'm not sure when it was yeah. shot. So yeah, yeah, we may have done it in seventy seven or seventy eight. They were very careful, and they they would call and they'd say we need to reshoot this scene because the way you said that line was not quite right, or that that your look at the other end of the telephone, you were talking to the bishop and you rolled your eyes, and we don't want to give any impression because the guy was saying something that was. I, that I was very impatient with, and from a from a character point of view, it made so perfect sense what I was doing. But Disney, the old Disney um, ethos there, uh, required that you didn't show disrespect to the, any anybody's church hierarchy. So um, I was to tone down that reaction, and it was it was a nonverbal reaction. It was just we had to shoot that uh, a bit of that scene. We had to take time out of one and go back, redress, bump, 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 shoot this thing. And I was, again, I was steaming, and I thought, how dare they? It's my role. It's my acting. I thought, no, no, Walt's still here. He's just do it the way they wanted it to be done. I just shut up, Herman. And it was, a, it was a collection of crazy ladies, too. You know, it was quite something. Yeah, how was that working on that set? I mean, because there were only just a few other male actors there. Yeah, and I, for some reason, got the got the top billing, with you know, but Cloris was there. It was, what can I say? and be polite. It was an amazing display of feminine behavior. <laughs> let's, let's put a vanilla word on it. Watching them deal with Cloris. Cloris is absolutely brilliant. You know, she's given some of the great film performances of all time. But she was a very, very difficult character. She was a loose cannon. And she'd keep everybody waiting. She'd do all kinds of crazy stuff. And then show up 
the call was at eight. She'd show up at 11 and had brought out a great big pot of chili and soup or something to make for everyone because everybody looked tired. Okay. So, and she was always ingratiating herself with the, with the crew. You know, it was just uh, uh, crazy, but watching the women, I just sort of stayed as aloof as I could, you know, um, Patsy Kelly had her own <laughs> march to her own drummer. But the guy that I got along with the well was old Douglas Fowley. I just loved Douglas. He was so full of stories and, and I lapped them up and he, uh, and I recognize the behavior now because kids will come to me and most of they'll ask a question. I'll tell a story and, and then they either get bored with it or they ask more, you know, and it, it makes you feel that you have something to pass on. You have something of interest to pass on, and you might actually do the kids some, some help by talking about other actors you've known of situations. You're just spitting a tale, being entertaining. And he was full of the most wonderful stories because he, he worked in the, in the golden period. You know, he was at, from everything from battleground, you know, where he was clicking his teeth and that, you know, with Van Johnson and, uh, over at MGM, he played Boston Blackie. He was, he did he was a very very useful um, um, character man all, all through the late 30s and the 40s and 50s. He was terrific and very very funny. Great guy. Yeah, he looked pretty good in drag too. Yes, he did. He was and he was fearless. I mean, he just he just reveled in and you know he committed himself entirely to the to the uh, joke of it. He thought it was hilarious. It's kind of an odd movie because it's a good cast and everything, but you guys really aren't together very often. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm the sort of uh, background presence behind it all. But then there's that, you know, he does get out into the into the bar and gets shut out in the alley without his pants, as I recall, with uh, Alan Hale Jr. And that was another guy that I loved talking to because of uh, his dad and all that, you know. And he still had the, uh, what was this place called? The Lobster Pot, I think. It was on Fairfax. They had a restaurant. But it was wonderful fun. And Karen was great, you know. I mean, uh, uh, Valentine. God, who else was in that? Um, Virginia Capers. Yeah, Virginia was one of those that was most annoyed by by Cloris. She, oh, she'd get steamy. She'd, she'd storm off and God, and I thought, oh, okay, well, just sort of have keep to my knitting, you know, and just keep your mouth shut. But it was great fun. It was great fun. I'm curious, did you ever meet uh, Albert Fayhill, the guy who wrote the book and that you were kind of based on? I don't know whether he ever came to the set. I, if I, if he was there, I don't remember meeting him. But I don't, I don't recall that he was ever on the set. You know, I was always becoming, having coming from you know serious theater and and having some, playing some heavyweight stuff, especially after Roosevelt. I wanted the story to to have a dangerous edge to it because they were they were doing some dangerous things, but it was part of the Disney ethos to lighten it and make it make it uh, children friendly, so that life is never too dangerous. It's never too dark, and that rankled but that that was the style of the studio it just you 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 couldn't break that that was what that was what disney did and so in a in a way now in retrospect i'm extremely um fortunate to have made a film under that regime and under that it's hard to explain to anybody who never worked in the old disney studio but it was so much it was a lovely place it was beautifully maintained 
And there were only, I think, four or five sound stages. And one of them was given over to the blue screen stuff. I'm calling you from Detroit right now, or just outside so of Detroit. Detroit. Um, I'm over in Westland. Okay. So just to the west, about halfway between uh, Detroit and Ann Arbor. And Ann Arbor, sure, yeah. You grew up around here, right? Over in Gross Point? Yeah. My dad and all my people are from Indiana. He came up to Michigan in 40, working Bulldog Electric downtown on Joseph Campo. And then the war came, and, and he went to Washington and was on the war production board, and I was born there. And then when we moved back to Detroit, he had a friend who sold Packards and whose wife was in real estate on the side, and she was found found us a tiny, a tiny, really, really small house right across from Richard's school on McKinley and Gross Point Farms. So that's where I grew up. And my grandmother, my his, my dad's mother, back in the twenties, built a house up on her little cottage up on the, on the Straits of Mackinac. And so we would, we would summer there, and I still go up to Michigan. Yeah, I just I love it up there. So how did you get from Gross Point to? Didn't you study in uh, England for a while? Uh, yeah, yeah, I was a Fulbright to Lambda, London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art. I don't know. I went to school. You know, I went to but you know, I went to Gross Point High, and there was half the class went to MSU, and the other half went to U of M, and various other few others trickled out east. I went to Bucknell, and it wasn't until the last year in college that it, it dawned on me that this might be more fun than selling tires or, or Procter & Gamble or something, you know. And and they said, it was in the English department, and then we had a very good drama guy, and he said, you're not ready to go to New York, you go get trained. So it was late. I had applied to Yale late, and I was going to go second semester, but this fellow came to visit his family in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. And Bucknell's on the hill, and he was he came up to see a play, and he asked a couple of us to go down to the Dallas Theater Center, where he was a member of the company, and he was a very impressive guy he's from Harvard and witty and charming, and this and I and it was an immediate acceptance, so I could go in the fall. So that's where I went instead of Yale. It helped only in that when I applied for the full play, I applied from Texas, and I was the, the academic umbrella of the master's program that was at Trinity University in San Antonio. We went to Lambda, and I was there a year. I was in theater center three years, and a year in Lambda, and then another year in theater, uh, the rep, and then I went to New York. So that's how that came about. Well, I'm glad to hear of another Michigan guy making good. You know. Well, I don't know. It's yes, I've had a great, I've had a great run in 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 this business. I, I have done all kinds of stuff, and I've had a, I've been at it now almost. Gosh, I thinking about it at almost 50 years and it started yesterday you know these these names and events come back pretty easily actually i can't remember what i did this morning i really can't um, and, I, and i don't know where i am now or what i'm supposed to do this evening but the cast of who was the who was the love interest of the of, you know she was married to alex Karras. speaking of detroit Susan Clark. I'm in a wonderful shop that I haven't been in before, run by this charming guy. It's, it's all Hollywood memorabilia. And I don't usually haunt these places, but there were a couple of actors I don't have on the wall. One, Victor McLaughlin and Errol Flynn, some obvious ones, not even obscure. So I'm just sitting here pouring through files of old actors and having a great time. So that's why I forgot that I was supposed to talk to you. <laughs> Blame the movie business. But I'm glad. I'm glad we could catch up. This is great. The last time I was in Detroit was to do a fundraiser for the, there was a stable, 
uh, there's a stable on Belle Isle. There's a guy named um, General Raish, Robert Raish, who lives in Lathrop Village. And he does a lot of charity work. We were do- we tried to raise some money doing a reading, a play reading. And Bob Lutz was one of the readers. And, oh gosh, my wife and myself and, oh, who's he? Oh, she's from Detroit and she's actually moving back. Oh, she's wonderful musical comedy. Uh, cantankerous. Um, she's terrific. Um, anyway, she was in her, but, uh, and we were, and, and we were trying to raise some money for the music hall as well. And then we were staying with some friends out in Gross Point Park. And I remarked, like everyone does, who's ever lived in Detroit, the, the change in Jefferson Avenue going downtown. Wow. Oh, man. It's tough, tough to see. Because the, the city was so great in the 40s and 50s. It's just a wonderful place. The city was so muscular. It's just so full of its own pride. It was great. Of course, the Lions were the tops. We had Bobby Lane and Doak Walker and Bobby Hornsmeyer and, you know, Bablo Boat, Werner's Ginger Ale, Goble 22 Beer. Yeah, anyway, they're probably boring the hell out of it. Anything else you want to know about, about that film? I mean, we, I, I enjoyed it terrifically. I had a good time. Well, it seems like it. You kind of get that feeling watching it that everybody seems to be getting along fairly well. Um, mm-hmm. I talked to Don Tate, the writer, um, about the film, and yeah, he talked about Cloris kind of trying to throw him under the bus a few times as well. <laughs> oh, God. She was terrible. Oh, and there was a guy that worked on it named Cider. Chris Cider? Is he, does he come up in the credits as the AD? Uh, unit production manager, Chris Cider. Chris Cider, yeah. His father was a very big deal in the 30s and 40s as a director. So you might Google Cider and see if his name comes up as a director. He was a, and I didn't realize, because at the time, um, you never do, if you're young and get your own career and ahead of you and all that, and you don't think about these things. But the people that are working around have a history, you know, and they're connected to people who are connected to people who are connected to Irving Thalberg and then all the way back, you know, it's just, and I love that part of the business. I mean, I just, I love talking to people who've been around for a long time, shooting on film and not, not electronically, you know? Yeah. It looks like he was the son of William A. Snyder. William Snyder. That's yeah. exactly right. And yeah. yeah, he had a huge career. It looks like. Yes, he did. And the kid was around. Uh, Chris was around all of that, you know? I mean, that was that was not clearly not his first time around the block. I mean, he's a very experienced guy. Yeah, Bruce Bilson. God, I forgot he directed it. Oh, my dear man. Bruce Bilson. He was a very agreeable guy and very easy to work with. Uh, but I think he was not terribly demanding because at Disney, the, the studio directed the film. And they sat around, you know, at the, at, like me having to to reshoot a reaction to something on the phone and they could have simply cut the reaction and kept it on the bishop but the movie had been mapped out to be shot a certain way and that's the way they were going to do it so they wanted the option so you you did what they told you to do yeah but i think bruce was very very relaxed because he realized that <laughs> whatever he did they'd tell him what to do you know yeah, he said he spent uh, over a year working on that project from beginning to end. Really? I'll bet. 
Well, they were very careful. I mean, the way they they had all this pre-production time and pre-run, I think that's where why the studio suddenly was not making money and the choice of material and the whole thing was a little bit... It was too sad. I, I, I didn't. I didn't have a lot to do with um, with uh, Mr. Miller, but my interviews and reactive, you know, interaction with him were very pleasant. Yeah, both Don and and Bruce had nothing but good things to say about him. Yeah, I liked him a lot. He was a very agreeable guy. Well, hey, next time you're in uh, Detroit area, give me a shout. I'll buy you a beer. I would love that. That would be great. It, it, it's uh, the Checker Bar isn't still there, is it? Uh, when I started in the business, I started at the Northland Playhouse. Uh, as a, a sort of a gopher and a assistant house manager and doing anything anybody wanted. It was through some of these actors who had been to Detroit on, on many of an, an occasion who taught me some of the places to go because I had, you know, lived a rather sheltered life out there in the point. There you are. Point of the point, isn't it? The point of the point is, yes, to be a little sheltered, yeah. So I couldn't wait to get away. And now I think I'd like to go back <laughs> just... And curl up and die. It's, it's still very sleepy and very, very insular. Thank you very much, sir. It was a real pleasure. My pleasure. All right, we are back, and we are talking about the North Avenue Irregulars. And while I was doing my research for this one uh, years ago, I found that we are in the minority when it comes to the critical reception of this film. Not a lot of love going around, to uh, paraphrase the strawberry shortcake. As far as uh, the critical reaction to this film, even though, like I said, the audience was howling when I saw it, but I know Gene and Roger didn't like it, and nor did a lot of other critics at the time. Roger, there's a uh, report out of Hollywood that Disney Studios is going to try to make a wider variety of movies in the future, not just this usual juvenile slapstick stuff for kids who like to see people fall on their faces, see cars split in two and dogs fly through the air. <laughs> well, after seeing the North Avenue Irregulars... It's easy to see why the Disney folks are finally realizing they've got to modernize their material, because North Avenue Irregulars is thoroughly mediocre. Mediocre is certainly the word, and that's a double shame because it has a good cast. Yes. You notice Barbara Harris there. Right. Cloris Leachman is good in this film. They just absolutely never connect. They, they, they always they, go they, to the slapstick. Every car that gets hit, you know, the back of the car falls off, a fender falls off. They're just interested and in the And then fenders. they have the extra beats. Everybody's supposed to say, ho, 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 that car's door fell off or something. Exactly. It is insulting to the men, even of kids. I mean, you go to see the movie in a the theater. The kids are running out to the candy counter. They yeah. don't care. More action there, yeah. I think this is the kind of movie that, like, in retrospect, it, it has improved. I mean, I can see at the time this was probably treated as kind of a throwaway and, and kind of wasting the talents of like a number of insanely talented actresses. Um, and not, not to take anything away from Edward Herman. I mean, of course he's like, you know, I think he won numerous, he did, came out of theater. He won numerous awards. He played FDR and Annie and all these other like, you know, supporting roles and stuff. Um, but these women are just, they fuel the movie. I mean, they basically run the movie and I can see critics being like, well, it's a kid's movie. But if you look at it now, it's better than that, you know? And I know that's a low bar and I sound like I'm damning with faint praise and I don't mean to, but it's genuinely one of the better live action Disney movies that they made. You know, if I had to put, pick like, you know, cause they made like what, like at least 40 or 50, right? I mean, they made a lot and you know, two or three a year, uh, for like, you know, 15 years. So it's like, but if you had like a top, I don't know, eight, I don't know if I want to say five, um, but like top eight or 10, this is in it. 
you know, it's probably in the bottom half of the top 10. You know, you, I don't think you're going to get near Freaky Friday or, oh, why am I blanking on all the good ones now? I'm blanking on all the well, good ones. I don't ones. know if you would consider Never Cry Wolf to be one of those because it was no, a that, that was production. A, that was a touchstone movie, though, technically. That happened after, like, when was that? It was like 84, 83. Like, they, they launched the Touchstone brand. This was after Eisner came in. Um, but they were doing stuff like, I remember there was a Robbie Benson movie called Running Brave, which was, I, I think, and again, I hope I'm not wrong. It was a Disney movie, but it didn't have Disney on the credits. Midnight Madness, I know, was like that. And that's its own – that's a very strange movie if you've ever – and, and one that I genuinely love even though it is not in any conceivable way a good movie. It really isn't. But I love this movie. It's so watchable. Uh, but that was made in 1980 with David Naughton and featured like a, like the first appearance on any screen I think of Michael J. Fox. I think he was like 15 or 14. And it was directed by these two guys, uh, both of whom – or at least one of whom. I don't, I don't remember which had a very successful career in television. Uh, and, and it was about this game that like, you know, basically was run around LA with these teams of teenagers trying to find clues to get to the end. And it was, they wanted to make a Disney version of like a kind of like a, a sex comedy. So it's, it's very chaste. It was very scavenger hunt to me. Yes. It's very scavenger, but there are boobs. They're like, there are boob jokes in it and it's a Disney movie. So they had to take the Disney off of everything. It had that same kind of compressed mix that all those Disney movies had where everyone is ADR'd and it sounds like a little too close to the microphone for what we're seeing. The very grainy, fast film stock, kind of very flat lighting and done, you know, very, very fast and efficient. I would say as far as your top 10, I would have to throw Escape from Witch Mountain in there because that was a major one for me growing up. That's a genuinely good movie. It has some cheesy stuff, but it's it's not about – Cat from Outer Space, I, I I haven't seen for many years, but I remember it being genuinely a good movie. Um, You know, like I, I liked some of the Dexter Riley – I mean 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, I don't – I wouldn't even classify in this because that was before like, you know, kind of the era that we're talking about. I remember Gus was pretty good. That was about the mule that kicked touchdowns. Uh, but oh no, the love bug, the original love bug. If, if we, if we're counting that, that's a really good movie. That's like a, like a, a stone cold classic movie. Well, in the original, um, absent minded professor, right? Flubber. Sure. Yeah. Shaggy not dog. the, yeah, not the Robin Williams dog. thing. Oh, the, sta- the shaggy the dog. Robin yeah. Yeah. Oh, that darn cat. The first that darn cat with Haley Mills, which was like actually kind of creepy, like because it had to do with a, a, like a, an abduction, like a kidnapping. And like there was some actual suspense in that movie. I remember the first movie I saw in theaters was The Boatniks. Definitely is in that Snowball Express, goofy Disney comedy. I would love to revisit a lot of those. I think when when you study cinema and you love cinema – it's a lot. I mean, you know, we, we can talk about kind of like the AIP pictures and those like independent, like kind of like, you know, or the grindhouse pictures or slasher movies or any kind of these sub genres of movies. And you can look at them and kind of study these sub genres and kind of see a progression through, especially throughout this era of filmmaking from like the late sixties into the eighties when it kind of fundamentally becomes something else one with the advent of home video and, and all sorts of other cultural things. But this live action kind of kids movie and you can throw chomps in there and you can throw other like other kind of like wannabe movies that wanted that market in this kind of subgenre but you can tell you can see the history of this era of movie making in these movies as well it's it's fascinating and it's no less kind of like legit uh, rather than, you know, like, you know, you, thrillers from the 70s, you know, everything what what from the parallax view all through, you know, 
all the way up through the late 70s or early 80s. It's like you look at the Ron Miller Disney movies and the progression from stuff like Snowball Express or the early 70s stuff to like North Avenue Irregulars or Watcher in the Woods or any of the the late 70s stuff when they were actually trying to broaden and be like, okay, how do we make cheap kids movies but not be so cheap and not be so kids but still somehow do it cheap and retain the formula? And it, it it's almost it like in the black hole, the Disney movie from 79, uh, which came out later that year. I think the North Avenue regulars came out earlier in the year is kind of the epitome of the schizophrenic tone of Disney at the time where they wanted a kid's movie, but the kid, a cute robot, but they also wanted the PG rating. They also wanted violence and they also wanted kind of like a, 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 a Nemo like, like haunted house movie in space. And it ended up being this cacophony of weird tonal craziness with like, you know, some of the creepiest, like one of the creepiest scenes I have ever seen in any movies in the black hole in the middle. I think we talked about it on this podcast and like when, when, when Anthony Perkins like takes off the face of one of the robots and then oh, gets, yeah. then gets Cuisinarded by Maximilian <laughs> horrifying, fucking horrifying. And yet then we have like slim Pickens as old Bob, like, you know, shooting lasers and stuff. And it's like, oh, sure. uh, no, it's like, it's so it's, it's, it's a fascinating, like North Avenue regulars, I think is a, like a, a must watch for anybody who kind of wants to really wrap their head around this entire era that was coming to an end of kind of low budget Disney live action kids movies. That's a good way to frame it all. I'm not going to be as intelligent, but like Mike, going back to your Siskel and Ebert mention, it seemed to me that a lot of critics did not like these type of things because they just saw it as junk. Cause so it was beneath them to, admit they enjoyed it and we don't know if they did or not but i'd be willing to bet that they enjoyed a lot of things that they panned nowadays i think it's kind of flipped because a lot of the kids movies and family movies are the biggest things gross wise box office wise and a lot of that stuff sometimes even gets overpraised you'll see like a lot of it just getting a pass you know there's a whole number of reasons for that but i do think that that given the way movies has changed and distribution and, you know, David talking about them being, you know, the audience being so fractured, it's forced uh, or not forced, but criticism has changed as well. So uh, taste of change, it's opened up from, you know, the very narrow with the exception of Pauline Kael, you know, the old white guy who was reviewing to, you know, now we've got men and women and all ages and, Anyone can do it, essentially. So we do have, I think, more realistic opinions nowadays about movies. Not everything has to be Academy Award worthy, which I think a lot of things used to be judged on. Like, you can admit that you laughed. It's okay. You know, it doesn't make you less intellectual or something like that. Just enjoy each movie on its own. What is this movie trying to do? Just trying to make you laugh for an hour and a half? Perfect. Judge it on that. You can't judge it against Kramer versus Kramer or Raging Bull or any, you know, any of the adult things of the time. That, so I think, I think in, in that aspect, um, we just judge movies differently now. But yeah, to David's point as well, it has aged well. It, it has. It's like the songs we've talked about. <laughs> Those are good songs. The performances are still funny. 
it all works. It all still works. And so. it's still super gay. And David says it's super. I gay, do. So. I'm gonna. I'm listen. I'm pushing this. 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 This is my meme. It's happening. <laughs> I'm. I'm gonna stand this movie as a gay icon movie. <laughs> it taught me what antacid was. It taught me uh, who the Bobsy twins were, and uh, what organized religion should be. Uh-huh. See, I told you it wasn't gonna be as intelligent as David spoke, but that's my two cents. We're gonna take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Whisper. There's only for two of us. It has nothing to do with you, senor. Believe me. Make us a bouillon, baby. Something filling to satisfy our appetites. But listen, don't put any pepper in it. My mouth was a furnace the last time you made it. Well, that bitch is bitching about the fish soup, bitch. I'm putting the pepper in anyways. One whore up there, and another one down here. Goddamn seas against me. How can I go on? What I wouldn't do for an iced coffee. Heavy on the ice. Here's your coffee, senora. Thanks. Good God, now what have you got on? What is this, a clown act? Didn't you say you wanted us in clean shirts? Honestly, are you trying to be funny? Not me. There's no such thing as a funny communist. Hey, Janarino. I came across this clean in the cabinet of that brunette. It looks to me like hashish. It's what they call Mariana. Ah, Mariana. Mm-hmm. Mediterranean man at his most ape-like. My God, I hope you avoid looking in mirrors. Listen, senora. I'm not so ugly. As it happens, I've been called handsome by lots of ladies. Yeah, senora. Plenty of women think that I'm not bad. And they're more feminine than you from the top of your head down to the tip of your toe. Pants, food prices, the bus fares, the taxes, the rent, and the cost of the goddamn gasoline. I almost forgot to mention those stinking cesspools, the high-rise housing projects for the foreign institute. Rotten, you wouldn't... Wouldn't let your dog stay in them. Senora, you rich bastards. Have let me have it so often I'm trying to return the favor. That's right. We'll be back next week with a look at Lena Vertmiller's Swept Away. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, David and Rod. Rod, what is happening with you, sir? You can still find my stuff at flickattack.com. Updated uh, a couple times a week. When I was last on the podcast, I promised that the first Flick Attack book would be done by the end of the year. I'm happy to say, Mike, that it is in the proofing phase. So it is officially done. It will be available very soon on Amazon. Flick Attack Movie Arsenal is the final title of that. 
And then uh, I think out tomorrow or the next couple of days is a book on David Fincher's Zodiac that Matthew Sorrento has put together for Fairlane Dickinson University Press. And I have a chapter in that about the 1971 schlock movie, The Zodiac Killer. Look for that as well. David, what's happening in your world, sir? Right now, I am in edit on a documentary for the Shutter Network uh, that is set now uh, to premiere in June of 2022. It is about a history of queer horror, and it is executive produced by Brian Fuller, uh, who is an amazing creative. And I really hope it's going to be a limited series, uh, I believe four episodes, and uh, very exciting. And the documentary that I've been working on for the past four years, Heretics. Uh, we'll be finished next year. It will come out probably at the very beginning of 2023. Uh, COVID has given us a number of, uh, uh, impediments. Uh, it was supposed to come out this year. Um, but we're still getting a couple of interviews. Uh, but yes, Heretics is about the, uh, the making of Exorcist to the Heretic, John Borman's 1977 sequel to The Exorcist, the biggest budget in Warner Brothers history in 1977, and wow. it became one of the most hated and infamous studio releases ever. And I have new interviews with John Borman, Linda Blair, Louise Fletcher, Rospo Pallenberg, who wrote a lot of it, the script supervisor, a bunch of other people who were in it and involved with it, critics, filmmakers, um, it's an amazing story. Uh, I've been working. It's been a passion of mine for a while. Uh, the, the site, the temp site right now is hereticsmovie.com. Um, there's nothing on there but a splash page, but there will be stuff on there in the upcoming months. And I'm super, super excited to finish this movie because, oh my God, it's, it's a crazy story. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. To inquire about advertising on the projection booth, please email sales at advertisecast.com. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world. We'll spread the sound of Sunday music. The world will rise up singing soon. Oh, and Sunday, that's a little love
to the end of this episode of The Projection Booth. And as the end credits roll, we wanted to thank you, the listening audience. Here at The Projection Booth Podcast with Mike White, host extraordinaire, Bang. Bang.